Goldthorpe is number one. A kickstart for Australia. Gold in a world record. Now it's Donovan Bailey trying to pick up runners. Donovan Bailey is putting on the third. A perfect score, 10.0 for Nancy Cavanici, a perfect score. The first time I've never seen anyone get a So in over 100 years, nobody's won as many medals at the Olympic Games in any sport than this great champion, Michael Phelps. Usain Bolt, sprinting ahead, winning by daylight and setting a world record. 9.68, the wind is okay. How easy was that? It is Off The Podium, an Olympics podcast coming to you again today for an interview episode. And what an interview we have for you today. You would have heard me tease this one on our last interview with Robert Livingston. Well, don't get teased anymore because you're listening to it right now, obviously. Joanna Griggs, icon of Australian broadcasting and a former athlete, of course, in the sport of swimming, which, again, I think not many people are aware of, that Joanna Griggs was a very esteemed swimmer back in the day. And this is an amazing chat. This is our longest interview. I'm sure you've seen that with the timestamp when you've downloaded it. But every second of this is pure, pure gold. Joe goes into a lot of details about her athletic career, how she got into broadcasting, some great stories about likes of Bruce McAvaney, Basil Zemplis, so many great things. Dale Begg Smith is talking talked about in this interview. Queen Chloe Esposito is talked about in this interview. There's so much here that you will thoroughly enjoy that I'm going to shut up and hand over to myself to introduce Joe properly. Here is our chat with the one, the only, Joanna Green. Excited to bring you our next guest here on Off the Podium. As you've heard over our last few weeks with our interviews, it's not just the athletes we're getting on the show. We're getting some people who, of course, are a bit more behind the scenes, a bit more on the, the journalistic or the broadcast side of the Olympics to learn a little bit more about their stories. But I think we've combined the two today because not only do we have one of the most recognized, recognizable faces on Australian TV when it comes to broadcasting the Olympics over the last 10 to 20 years, we also have a former athlete who was so close to the Olympics herself, a Commonwealth Games bronze medalist. And I'm sure if things had gone a different way, it would have been one of the most dominant forces on the Olympic scene had that uh, turned a different direction. I am so thrilled to be able to learn a little bit more about her athletic career and a broadcasting career and everything else in between. The one, the only, Joanna Griggs. Joe, welcome to Off the Podium. Thank you, Ben. It's such a pleasure to be here. Oh, gosh, I hope I can live up to that intro. That was pretty special. So I've got to try something to say now. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, we always like to put the pressure on our guests straight away to try and sort of, uh, you know, we're a very high pressure show here, Joe. It's so all right, Ben. Of- we're used to putting the pressure on athletes as well. Like I think I was almost uh, vomiting in a bucket the day that we had built the Ariane Titmus katie Ledecky battle to the point of you know, stratospheric pressure. And I was feeling so ill because so often we've done that in the past and it doesn't actually live up to those expectations. But that was one of the few where you came off air having watched what actually transpired, certainly for that first 400. And it was just, it, it surpassed expectations. So I figure somebody else is due to do that to me. <laughs> well, you're welcome. You know, we, we, we uh, always talk about Channel 7 during the Olympics and now it's time to put it back on Channel 7 right now. It's kind of, here we go. It's our, our chance to shine and off the, off the podium, which, I mean, you and I were just sort of talking a little bit off air and sort of, 
you know, constantly when you're doing interviews and, and sort of media appearances, you're often no doubt talking about better homes and gardens, house rules, kind of, you know, all the, the shows you're doing. But is is your swimming career something that you often get asked about in terms of just media interviews that people kind of want to learn a little bit more about your life before your broadcasting career? No, not really. I mean, I obviously have to do a lot of public speaking and I speak about it because, um, you know, apart from my Com Games bronze medal, I got a silver at the world. So I was number one in the world on a number of occasions. And, and despite popular opinion, I actually didn't um, retire because I was ill. I, I had been very sick for two and a half years, but I actually finished at number one in the world when I retired. And uh, and. It, I think we tell the story about it because, one, it surprises people that you actually had that part of your life. It was such a short part of my life. I mean, I, I you know, swam probably for Australia over a period of about you know, five to seven years, whereas I've been in the media now for 29 years straight. So it's such a small part of my life. But funnily enough, every skill that I have learnt um, that I think is really, really valuable in my everyday um, activities and the everyday way that I run my life was ironically uh, learnt from swimming it was learned through sport so you know I learned invaluable things like time management I learned um, how to accept criticism I mean part of your relationship with the coach is he's there to tell you what you're not doing right and how to improve it so you you get very good at at being able to acknowledge what's working um, you know also acknowledge what's not working but be able to leave that behind and move forward and and yeah, the funny things, you know, I learned how to sleep, which is one of the most valuable skills that I have in my life. I learned a lot about mental health, which is my whole life away from sport and television that I, I do through my work with Beyond Blue. So all of that came through that period of sport through those developing years. You know, I was 14 on my first Australian team. Um, I retired at 19, having not really had much of an education. I only had a couple of months of education in total in high school. Um, so there's lots of messages that I feel that I can I can say to families and to kids about understanding that life, um, sometimes you've got to work out what you want to do. Sometimes it's equally important to work out what you don't want to do. But the biggest thing is, is not being afraid to try something different. And if you don't like it, change it. And funnily enough, that's that's everything I learned through sport. And yeah, you know, I've got in great memories. It was a fantastic time. I'm not traumatized by that time. I, I loved every second of it. I got to see the world, you know, 17 times before I was 17 years of age. So it, it was a great sport and a great lifestyle. Um, but it also probably was the period of my life that I learned more about myself that I still value the most in my life. Even now, I'm talking to you, I'm, I turned 48 in October. Um, I value the years of what I learned through sport more than any other period in my life as far as what I learned about myself, my strengths, my weaknesses and and how to like myself because for a long period of that time I was quite sick and um, when you spend a lot of time by yourself, you you really have to make peace with yourself and I think that, that some of those things are the qualities that actually carry me through everyday life now that I'm most grateful for. When you got into swimming, was it something that you just picked up at a young age? Were you very sporty, kind of doing multiple different sports? I mean, what was it that led you to swim and then ultimately kind of stick with swimming to eventually swim for Australia? 
probably not like a lot of swimmers, I learned to swim because I was an asthmatic. Um, so it was fantastic to, to help for your breathing with damp water. Um, I did a million different sports, which is quite ironic because I am actually one of the most uncoordinated people that you will ever come across in life. Like I can look at a doorway and go, I will walk through that doorway and then literally smack bang into the wall. Um, I, I, anyone who knows me who works with me now is like, how are you an athlete? So I often say, look, I was good in water. I'm just terribly ungifted on dry land, except that I was in so many state teams as a youngster. I had to be good at some point. So that has to have come you know, as I've got older um but i actually ended up i'd always swam my parents you know we lived on the northern beaches we spent a lot of time in the country so we were always near dams and rivers and so our parents were very adamant that we all had to learn how to swim and their rule was that you had to swim safely so that you understood how surf worked and rips worked and um you know like a captain freshwater surf life saving club as a junior and and you know at the time got poached by manly which was a big deal um, not really having any understanding of what that meant at the time to those people, but um, it was just it was just having fun with my mates, and we would spend countless hours in the water, around the water, and obviously swim training. As far as meets, I'd always swum through school. I um, had swum. We weren't really allowed to swim more than sort of one session a week for a very long time, and I actually went to a swim meet with somebody else in my team for the first time because my parents. Parents didn't feel like I should um, be going into competitions at that point, and uh, and it was at a swim meet with with another uh, family friend that I was like, oh my god, this is awesome, and and almost immediately was talent scouted, and there was a great battle. I was one of four kids, and there was a great battle that ensued between my parents, who believed kids should be kids. And the swim coaches who felt that I had such a, a natural raw talent that I should be training more. And, you know, I wasn't allowed to train more than three sessions a week until I was 14. And then from 14, basically jumped from that to six to 10 hours a day, six days wow. a week, and was on the Australian team from you know, uh, 15, I think was my first trip for Australia. And that was it. I, and we were in an era where you there was a big chip on the shoulder from Australians to me. Like, funnily enough, now the world comes to Australia. They come because they know how great our athletes are, how great our coaching systems are in place, how fantastic our coaches themselves are. But back then we would just travel endlessly and constantly, which, you know, afforded you an amazing lifestyle as a young kid to, to see the world. But, um, you know, they are so much smarter. And the other thing that we did back then is we overtrained massively. Like I was a sprinter and we did the same amount of training that a marathon swimmer would do. I mean, it's complete madness. I, I, I actually love these days when I go and do stories on, uh, you know, the current batch of athletes and, and you see how far the sports science has come and how far the knowledge has grown and how they spend so much time working on, you know, transition areas like a tumble turn or a start. And it's all about explosive training. Whereas we was we were kind of at the end of that era where you just had to flog athletes to death to to see who was still left standing at the end of it. So um, there was lots of good and lots of bad that came out of it as far as I don't think I probably would have been as sick as I was if I wasn't given antibiotics as often as I was back then. I mean, I hardly had antibiotics in the years uh, since since I stopped swimming, I, I'm really conscious of what I feed myself and how I live my life and how much sleep I get. And um, yet back then, if we so much as sneeze, we were given a box of antibiotics. So wow. it's just, it's funny, it's just a different era and a different time. And I reckon anyone from my era 
would be able to relate to it because thank God they've got smarter and cleverer with, with how they approach sport and how professional they all are these days. But, um, you know, I'm still grateful that we we got to experience it because I still have great friendships from that period and I and I overridingly have great memories. It's it's so fascinating to kind of hear all that because I mean, sort of I grew up in the in the nineties and the two thousands and sort of looked at I like to think it as the golden era of, of swimming and sort of some of the names that you kinda of had in that period. I mean, you know, other people on the Australian team around then, you know, Haley Lewis, Nicole Livingston, Lisa Karakini, obviously Kieran Perkins is just starting out then, Susie O'Neill, kind of people, you know, moving forward into the nineties and that led on to the Thorpes, the Klims, you know, yeah. the the Trickets and the Joneses and all that kind of stuff. So I mean it must have been just such a a unique period to kind of be involved in where you're swimming up against these people who would go on to become household names and often, you know, competing them very well, beating them in some aspects. So, I mean, do you learn a lot from these, you know, people that really now are very much household names for different reasons to why you're a household name? Yeah, it's funny. Like, I mean, I remember rooming actually with Lisa Curry-Kenny and Julie McDonald at the 1990 Commonwealth Games. I'd just turned 16. I was the second youngest in the team. I I think uh, Hayley Lewis was the youngest. She was still 15 years and I'd just turned 16. And you had this woman who, you know, the 1990 Com Games, she was just a rock star, Lisa Curry-Kenny. She was obviously still with Grant. They had all the young kids. They were on pool deck. I mean, we were just watching it like it was, it was like you were watching a a crazy movie being played out because you watch her as the athlete and you watch how professional she was. And she was very strong-willed and strong-minded with the athlete, the coaches at the time um, because of what she'd experienced, you know, in the 20 years leading up to that. But then you you just watch this absolute circus that would happen um, when she would appear on pool deck and, and how she handled all that. So yeah, you just sort of sat back and went, wow, that is just a different level to anything that we will probably ever experience. And uh, yeah, I think, I think one of the great things about sport, you watch and you learn all the time. And I, I still do it when I'm watching athletes compete now. I mean, I find it fascinating to see how the athletes approach modern day sport and all of the challenges that come with it. I think the debate around mental health at the moment, you know, with athletes like um, Naomi Osaka and Simone Biles is absolutely fascinating. I think we're going to see a lot more of that, but even though 17 years I did a, the tennis, I always found it more interesting almost like I love watching tennis players on the court, but to see how they were underneath the tunnels and to see which which you know tennis players needed two people and which tennis players needed 16 people. You know, it's no different to when you were competing. There were personalities that needed a lot of attention. There were personalities that needed virtually zero, but as always in sport, it's actually not necessarily, you know, people draw on all those things or they draw on the response of the crowd, but it is truly the battle that they have between their their two ears as to, to whether or not they um, are successful. And I don't think you ever stop being fascinated by that. It's, it's part of the appeal of sport. Yeah, it's one thing I always like to sort of speak to athletes on the show here. It's it's all well and good to learn about the physical aspect and the training and everything, but it's kind of that mental aspect. And obviously, different sports are, uh, you know, different you know yeah. scenarios around what you've got to do that. But I mean, what was what was that like back when you were competing? The mental aspect was a sports psychologist something that was around back then, or was it kind of you know still fresh? I mean, kind of how would you deal with the the mental aspect of swimming back in the day? Well, it's so strange because I often get asked about it now. I've been on the board of Beyond Blue for seven years and I get asked about it often and I say, I'm so grateful I had the coach that I had Paul Hardman when I swam because he was very, I now realise, very progressive. 
he very much had the attitude that you did not have good physical health unless you had good mental health and vice versa. And I 100% subscribe to that. You, you, you actually can't just have one and think you're going to get through life okay. Um, so whenever I would feel completely overwhelmed, and because I went from nothing to everything, there were plenty of times where I felt overwhelmed as an athlete. That would be the sort of stuff that, that we were encouraged to, to, to actually use and I would use without a moment's hesitation. What blows me away is I, that kind of continued on into my my life as I went along. Every time when I failed my first marriage, that was a really confronting time. So, of course, I, I sought help and I have it every other time in my life whenever I've felt um, vulnerable or overwhelmed or just need clarity and have a bit of a fog in my head. And I don't even think twice about it. And I say it so often and I kind of watch people react in a room and they're like, oh, it's amazing that someone with your profile would say that. I'm like, but why isn't everyone saying that? Like we all yeah. go to the doctor if there's, if physically we've got something wrong with ourselves or if you have an injury, you don't hesitate to go and get the treatment you need for, for an injury. Um, and I don't, because it wasn't the world I was brought up in, I, I don't get why when they can get so much relief and so much clarity and so much help to take the steps to, to, to feel very strong and very clear, why anyone would hesitate. So, again, that's that's what I learned through swimming. And I'm so grateful because the more that I work in that mental health area, I realise that there are so many people who struggle with taking that first step. And I just feel like wrapping them up and going, it's amazing. All those things that you're worried about are, are built up in your own mind. The second that you take that first step, it's like the first step to, to your world feeling lighter. And and it really, it's it's something, um, one, I'm thankful for through swimming, but two, I just drive home to people all the time. So, you, you know, I watch athletes. Um, tennis is an interesting thought because you you see you see a game seesaw so quickly from yeah. one way to the other, and it can be the smallest thing that triggers athletes. And you know, I think about speeches I've heard from other great athletes in years ago. Linford Christie, who now obviously has a very dubious record, but when he was at the top of his game, he came and spoke to us all at um, Narrabeen, where where we trained at, where is now the New South Wales Institute of Sport, and. And I remember him sort of saying um, a trick that they would use in athletics would be everyone's focused, everyone's absolutely on the finish line, they're all doing their own thing, they're all mentally getting themselves ready. And so what you do is just take a tiny bit of the surface off, which is you know a little bit of rubber, put it into the lane next to you, just throw it, and you watch that person's focus go from the finish line to that. And I remember the time just thinking, what? That's outrageous. But you realise stuff like that happens all the time, whether it be someone from a crowd, whether it be no crowd like we just saw in Tokyo, whether it be, um, you know, pressure and individuals putting on themselves, how they respond to that. Like some people pressure responds mentally, sometimes it responds physically. And I, like that to me is the endless fascination with those athletes that are able to compartmentalise, the athletes that are able to take a bit more control of their destiny. The other ones that are so raw that we go along that journey with them. And, I, you know, I'm thinking just off, just in the last few weeks, like it was so lovely to see Emily Seabon with that moment of realisation when she got that individual medal after so long um, and what that meant to her. And, and uh, that's, that was more than a window of what that race meant to her. That's what the last 20 years have meant to her and, and everything she's gone through and everything that she's loved and everything that she has had those nights where she's lying awake in bed about. Um, and I think, yeah, I think it's it's why I I absolutely um, love being back in the chair doing sport because sport always 
to me, 99% of the time is positive. And even if there is a negative story, you can generally get a story of redemption out of it. Um, and, you know, like I, I, you, you think about it, I mean, I was, I was losing sleep over whether the, the Olympics should go ahead this time around. I was having arguments with my bosses as to whether we were part of the problem because we were going to be um, broadcasting, you know, the Olympics. And, and I'd spoken to so many athletes who were frustrated and so sick of having the conversation about whether or not the games would go ahead. And, and just that, you know, it, it's human nature. People are uh, inquisitive and they want to hear it directly from that person. But when that person's been asked that question 50 times in a day and they actually can't get respite and you can say everything in the world about taking five minutes for yourself, but when that five minutes is still somebody asking you a question, I think I think I, I I like many other people really were questioning what we were doing to the athletes, what we were doing to the Japanese people and Japan as a country, and and whether it was the right thing to do. And yet I can remember being three quarters of the way through the first day and just finding myself smiling like I I don't know that I was just giddy with excitement and just so grateful that it had actually gone ahead for for all the benefits that you got a sense of that first day but you could never have imagined the impact that it would have had you know on our nation and across the world to give people a sense of hope and a great distraction so again sport kind of came to the fore um with all the things that you don't always think about when you think about athletes trying to be the fastest or the quickest or get the highest points. <laughs> when it comes to sort of just the feelings and emotions around Olympics in general, when you were at your peak, you know, you'd bronze at Commonwealth Games, silver at the World Championships, was it kind of just the progression that you were aiming towards in a, an Olympics? Is that sort of what was always a lot of your focus as a swimmer or is it something that kind of it came to you as you were competing at the highest level that, hey, maybe I can achieve an Olympic Games? Oh, I think once you start setting goals and you start getting results, you would be absolutely lying if you ever said that you didn't want to be an Olympian. And and I think that was, um, I tried to make the point in the opening ceremony uh, preamble, it, it's so rare to be an Olympian. It's such rare air. And when you think, you know, like with the argument about whether or not the game should or shouldn't go ahead, like that was done and dusted. But, you know, going into, I haven't done the numbers since then, but going into the, the Rio Olympics, um, only 74% of athletes will go to more than one game. So for 74% of all those athletes that went there for Australia, that was their one shot at glory. Now, you know, I say to them, I, I, wasn't, I wasn't able to do that. So, so my story was I finished with the silver medal at the 91 Worlds. I got really, really sick. I spent most of that next year getting better. I got better. I got back to a point where I could train. I probably just pushed it too early, which is not also an uncommon story with athletes that, that are striving to be the best because you've got a deadline of a date. And, um, and I ended up, because they changed the backstroke turns in that time, they changed them from where we used to touch a wall and turn around to where you what you see now, which is like they are allowed to flip over to a freestyle tumble turn and flip off. And I hadn't done a lot of race practice with it. But at that point in my life, um, so I had two two and a half years and I wheat-free, yeast-free, egg-free, corn-free, malt-free, sugar-free, beef-free, dairy-free, herb-free, spice-free, caffeine-free wow. diet. Um, <laughs> a lot I would of free have, stuff in there. <laughs> there's, there's a lot of free stuff, but not all the good stuff, let me tell you. And, um, you know, I'd gone from six to ten hours of training a day to, you know, at least six to eight hours of treatments a day. Um, I had, you know, at that point when I was back training, I was sleeping with a heart rate monitor on. And if I woke up and my heart rate was above a certain level, I wasn't allowed to train or compete. 
And we were doing that because we knew that internally my body had been under a lot of stress and we knew what, what markers to look out for. And, and I chose to swim a meet when I'd woken up when my markers were through the roof, which were, were indicating to everyone that, that I was obviously um, a bit under the weather and battling something and, and not, to, not to take the risk. And I, I sat down and actively debated and chose to take the risk and swam a meet in Canberra and three days later was back in hospital with pleurisy. Um, and I basically that was the last like two weeks going into the Olympic trials and I had to make the call to pull out of the Olympic trials. And at the time it was a massive news and um, because of the results I'd had, we had people like, uh, you know, Alan Jones at the time was trying to start a massive campaign about how ridiculous the swimming rules were and um, and how they should, you know, have chances where you could change it. Whereas as an athlete, it's 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 funny, like you you can have all the debate in the world, but as an athlete, you know when the trials are on and you know if you can't do the trials that that's what you give up. So even though it was a difficult decision, I knew I knew what it meant and I, I was actually almost mortified at the debate around it because I didn't want anyone to think it was me asking for that. I wasn't asking for that because I know there was some other athlete who was going to be right for it. And, uh, and, and so a part of that was just mortifyingly humiliating because I just didn't want people to know. I just wanted to be able to deal with that. Um, and, and the other part was also being a little bit flattered that anybody would take up the fight for it. And, you know, it's kind of funny how many years, all these years later, they finally changed the way that they do swimming trials and they've changed some of the rules around it. But, um, wow. But for me, you know, I went away and I, I didn't even look at a pool for six months. And, you know, by that stage, we had a lot of doctors who were recommending that I that I not go back to swimming. And I decided after about eight months away that I wanted to go back, that I, that I didn't want to do it for anyone else. I just wanted to prove to myself, you know, I had been really healthy until I made that decision that weekend. Um, that I, that if I did it all exactly the same as we'd been doing it, if I if I was really um, you know extraordinarily disciplined and I didn't stray, and we worked with our one coach who who was on board with it, and we changed our program. So we, that was the first time that we didn't do a million kilometers every single week. Yeah, you know, we we turned it to more explosive training. We turned it to more sprint specific training. We cut down the number of hours in a pool. We cut down the numbers of, of dry land, but still doing everything right medically. And I got to the trials in 1993 and hit the wall, the fastest time of the world, um, got the most extraordinary reception, had everyone in the stands and then all the officials, you know, hugging me and kissing me and lots of my peers so happy for me. And I always remember somebody saying, oh, you're back. And I, and I remember thinking, no, mate, that's, that's it. Like I'll, I'm only proving it for myself. Um, and I, I knew, and my coach knew, ironically, he's in a in a full grandstand, which is weird to think of full grandstands even at the current day. Yeah. But what are those? You know, <laughs> I spotted him, and he um, he just had a tear down his face because he also knew that 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 was it. And I always remember ringing my mum afterwards, and uh, and you know, by that stage, it was a good news story, so it was going everywhere. And my mum was like, well, "How are you feeling?" And I said, "Oh, mum, I'm I'm done." And and just hearing my mum's voice going up just a couple of octaves, and she's like okay so so darling that's wonderful and you know what are you going to do now and you know from her point of view she was a school teacher who had a kid who only had a couple of months education who's retiring at the grand old age of 19 with no qualifications and no prospects to go ahead um and you know I was just like oh my mom mom right I might, I might give television a try and the funny thing about that is I now know how many athletes say that and how many of them hope for it I also know how incredibly rare those opportunities are um and 
my situation within 24 hours, I had a, a contract offer from seven, nine and 10. And ironically, chose seven way back then um, the first time because they promised me training and I had enough of an ego that I didn't want to do anything badly and learnt the first rule of television is that they'll say anything to get you to sign a contract. But in actual fact, they lied through their teeth because I I wasn't ever given training. I was just thrown in the deep end and basically learnt by public humiliation for those first few years. Wow, that's crazy. That's so crazy to hear that story. Although I also believe you were very close to an acting career because you were on Home yeah. Away. So, I mean, how did, how did that nearly happen? <laughs> no, 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 not close. Uh, so to give you a nutshell, I, I, in that six months that I first had off after I'd, I'd pulled out of the trials, I signed with Vivian's modelling agency just because I needed money to come in and had this great career where they worked out very quickly. I was great for commercial, not great for catwalk because I think I actually walked and fell off the end of one of the first catwalks that I did and they were like, yeah, let's not get you walking. Um, and so part of what they'd sent me to was an audition for Home and Away, which was just like on those days you just get where you were called to and off you'd go um, and ended up having to play for the day Inga from Sweden who was a backpacker who was trying to steal Bobby's husband. Oh. Um, yeah, a Swedish backpacker. And, of course, you know, years when I did it, it was just like hilarious fun. We got a good laugh out of it at the time. Didn't really think anything of it. But, of course, when I started um, <laughs> back at seven, uh, it was like I knew I did not want that to surface. So um, <laughs> I made a part of my negotiations very early on, but I owned every copy outside of the master tape. And <laughs> literally for 25 years, no, like it was like a legend in television. People knew about it, but they no one could find it. And, and I had lots and lots of people try and find it, and people who had contacts in news libraries and contacts on the home and away and it didn't happen and then I woke up on April Fool's Day a couple of years ago and um, I opened up social media in the morning and I, I literally started to hyperventilate because somebody had put up a picture a freeze frame of me as Inga from Sweden with Bobby and said you know holy shit was Joe Griggs 7 on home and away <laughs> and the funny thing is by the time I got to work I, I just started giggling by the time I got to work Everyone at work was talking about it. They were all just absolutely giving it to me, all my crew, and they, they thought it was the funniest thing. And then we got a phone call from Seven and it was the head of publicity who was sitting with the head of Home and Away publicity. And they said, look, we realise it's an April Day's full joke, but we still have to do the right thing and check um, with you. But we've gone through the records. We can find nothing of it. You weren't actually on Home and Away, were you? And all the team behind me just roared with laughter and went, <laughs> yes, she was. And so they said to me, well, Griggsy, this is too this is too good not to um, actually go to town on. And so I woke up the next morning and the front page of the Daily Telegraph was um, Joe Griggs's lost soapy tape and so I just it could have been worse it could have been a sex tape yeah. <laughs> you wake up and see a front page of a newspaper you know Joe Griggs lost tape yeah you don't want sort of you another just, word in the but there, you don't right? want another word and honestly I reckon I did not do one FM radio interview for about for the literally up until about a year ago they've kind of got sick of it now but I would they do an intro and then you hear it was like you know bad 70s porn star music as they panned up your legs and 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 they'd be like oh my goodness I just laughed because even at my husband's 40th we actually found a, a recreation of the dress 
And we actually did a split screen for his 40th birthday where it was Inga from Sweden, you know, back in 1990, I think we filled it or 91. And, and then, you know, my husband's birthday and we did a split screen event. It was just, I, I ended up having a conversation with Inga asking this, you know, Swedish ho to go to bed once and for all and never come back. And, <laughs> and we've, it's given us a lot of, um, a lot of mileage out of those last few years. Fantastic. Oh, gosh. I loved I, I need to see this now. We'll, we'll, yeah. Oh, you don't want to. I promise you, it's not a very, put it this way. I was asked to do, I was asked to do another show and I was asked to do a, uh, like a, a musical. And my manager's like, oh, mate, she can't act. Uh, and, and they're like, oh, no, no, no. We really, we think she'd be great. And then she's like, let me just send you this tape. And so, so ironically, it's actually stopped me from doing anything else in that world because I, I just, I'm so bad at trying to be somebody else. So I think it um it actually, funnily enough, made me work out what I did want to do in my career and what I didn't want to do. And that's just as important for kids to learn. <laughs> well, we'll say this right now. You and Chris Hemsworth are, you know, familiar people then because you've both been on Home and Away. So take that as a, as a positive, right? You've both I got that on your resume. I literally just my tea out. Um, <laughs> no, I think, uh, I think Chris can act. And, uh, <laughs> he couldn't when he was on Home and Away, let's be honest. He's, he's developed those skills over the years. So. Your words, not mine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know, I know. Like I don't want you to speak out against uh, Channel 7, but uh, yeah, I'll gladly I'll gladly own that. Before I talk a little bit more sort of about um, your broadcast, Broadcasting career, I I clearly am not an Olympian. I clearly did not go anywhere with swimming. But my my stroke of choice was always backstroke. I always just enjoyed back. It's still to this day, if I go swimming in a pool, I do backstroke because I just I just always in, enjoyed it. Was that how do you sort of choose that preference? Is it a case of your body suited for it? You enjoyed it more? I mean, kind of because backstroke's one of these ones that I feel that not many people go with anymore. And I'm like, why? Backstroke's a great stroke. Pretty sure Kelly McEwen might have something to say about yeah, that. Possibly. <laughs> and then we'll yeah, possibly. I mean, but it took us all this time to win a gold medal in backstroke. <laughs> and stroke, so. and yeah. um, look, to be to be honest, um, I think it's what it's what what you're good at. I was really high in the water in backstroke, and anyone who knows me well has always said that the reason I chose backstroke was it was the only stroke that you could actually talk the whole way along while swimming. <laughs> um, and and other people like joke and they go, "My God, you're the only person who gets rewarded for going backwards." It's like, actually, there's about eight sports you go backwards in, but okay. Um, but. To be honest, it was just what felt natural. It still feels natural. Like I get very frustrated if I go on the water these days because swimming is a sport where even if you're at the elite level, you can miss a week because you have a cold and you can basically just um, feel like you are two foot under the water from where you need to be. It doesn't take long to get back to feeling great, but, um, you know, I like, I like how... I like how high in the water you can feel with backstroke. And for me, it comes really, really easy. I, I, I was backstroke and freestyle, but I enjoyed backstroke more. And I still probably a bit like you, even if I'm in the surf, um, you know, I'll swim a couple of strokes freestyle, but I always find that I end up turning over onto my back and just like liking how it feels and liking the movement. Was it a surprise that when Kaylee won the, the gold in, in Tokyo that, I mean, that was our very first ever backstroke gold when she, yeah. when she won, obviously went into win two? Because I remember we were talking that during the, the games that it's a surprising fact that yeah. this is taken and Australia. And Nicole had got a bronze years before, but it was just her yeah. and Kaylee. So, um, yes, no, I mean, I, I grew up idolising people like Lisa Forrest, who was phenomenal, but hadn't had that same success at the Olympic level. She'd done really well at the Commonwealth level. But as always, for me, it was about who she was as a person and what what I um, related to as her as it, she was, you know, we, we got to meet her lots of times when we were young growing up and she was so generous um, as a human being. And I, I think I still 
I think I still judge the athletes, which is what was so great about Tokyo, was there was so much heart shown by our athletes and so much team rapport uh, that was so palpable to the viewing audience because even though we're broadcasting it, you're still just watching it and you're just there for the ride and you, you, you know, those moments like Kaylee and M on the blocks or um, how gracious Carl Chalmers was in his post-race interview where, you know, it's it, I heard another interview with him the other day and he said, you know, it took him, took him a couple of days just to realise he had done his best time by half a second. It just, other people were better than him. And um, I don't know, those moments of, of graciousness or hearing Kate Campbell talk about what her individual meant or, you know, those moments where you're watching athletes um, care about each other, whether it be Katie Ledecky and Ariane, the respect instantly shown amongst them for, for what they're both achieving in the sport. They're, they're the things that actually stay with you. Like, I, And I think they would stay with not just people who love sport, but anyone who's watching it. Like, I bet they could tell you, about the gold medal that was shared by the high jumpers in athletics, or they could tell you about Cedric Dubler with Ash Maloney and the decathlon. You know, they transcend sport. And I think that's, that's the, to me, that's the appeal of sport. It often transcends just the sporting activity. And, uh, and they're the things that you remember long after. Well, you think about some of the greatest sports stories that say have been turned into movies, you know, Cool yeah. Runnings, uh, yeah. you know, Eric the Eagle. Then you have Eric the Eel in, in yeah. Sydney and kind of all those sort of moments like that that really kind of do that. And I have a vivid memory as a child actually with um, Matt Welsh. I was shopping in Hobart and he must have been there for like some sort of appearance. I think it was just after Sydney. And he was sort of setting up the table and everything and, I just, I just don't think people knew who he was. And I straight away, I'm like, it's, it's Matt Welsh. Like, you know, I love him. You know, I was a little kid, you know, Olympic fanboy. So gone straight up to him and gotten the autograph and all that sort of stuff. And just that humble nature kind of of, of Matt at the time. And it's sort of memories like that that you kind of have with, yeah. with athletes, I think, as a kid that really stick with you and kind of you, you grow Absolutely. up. Absolutely. Yeah. The same way if you, have a, if you have a bad experience, they yeah. also stick with you. Like, you know, that's what they say. Sometimes it's better never to meet your idols in, in that horrible incident that you might actually be disappointed. But for my part, I reckon 98, 99% of the time, athletes are incredibly down to earth because, you know, no matter what their life becomes, um, they still have to do the work and they still have to turn up and they still have to engage with the people. about. It. And most of them who have a crazy life talk to you about those moments where they're engaging with their peers is actually the most normal aspect of their life. It means even more to them. Well, I actually, um, I have a story on the page just while we're on that topic about you. Yeah. Like this oh, is a really? true story. So mm-hmm. when my mum was alive, this was, I think you, you'd come to Hobart for a segment for Better Homes and Gardens. And I believe you were doing a, like a filming day at, at Bunnings or, or something yeah. like that. So my mum had gone there with my dad and kind of um, I think she, she told the story about how she saw you there and she's like, she's a bit nervous, like, oh, you know, I want to meet her, but, you know, oh, she's, she's not approachable. She's a TV star. And stuff. Anyway, <laughs> long story short, she went up to you, got a photo taken with her, and she just would glow about how nice and normal and down to earth. I couldn't believe this. Like this was just the nicest thing. And and to, to the day she died, she would whenever she would talk about sort of, you know, famous people that she'd met and that, you were always listed up there as, as one of the best people she met. So you left an impact. Act on somebody just Thank like you. that well first of all I'm sorry that she's no longer with you but I, I I am really proud of the fact that everything that I do in my life and everything I do um on the shows I work on I I drill that into everyone because sometimes people forget the way it works you know it's the same as with athletes yeah that, that they they're doing what they're great at I'm doing something that I love um and I only am lucky enough to keep doing that because people are good enough to watch 
So yeah, at some point, some people will lose that that chain, and they think, oh no, everyone should be thanking me because I'm doing something fabulous. No, it shouldn't be that. It should, you know, every everything I work on, I say to everyone, I don't care if it takes us an extra two hours to get our shooting done, but we stop and you talk to every individual, and and you remember to thank them, and you remember to um, always remember the order and remember that you only have it because of them. And so, yeah, I kind of choose to live my life like that anyhow. I choose to live my life by a lot of very strict rules. Again, most of them that I learned through swimming, but but I would like to think that one of them is um, is actually being kind to other people, which I always say to kids. Is, it's one of the easiest and most simple things that you can do, but it's amazing how some people do forget that along the way. But yeah. uh, that's a lovely story. Thank you for sharing. One of the earliest memories I have of, of seeing you on TV, and I'm sure it's it's the same as sort of one of your first sort of main roles was your time on Sports World. I used to, I used to get up on a Sunday oh, morning and just religiously. We oh, so do I. We it, we it was all... my Sunday morning, you know, tradition <laughs> getting up. It was that and then sort of bookended by watching the Sunday footy show. Like it was yeah. just, um, it was just such a, a great morning, Sunday morning. I mean, what were the memories like on that and kind of, you know, taking that sports love that you have to be able to translate onto a show like Sports World must have been incredible. We, it's funny you say that because uh, I'm back in Melbourne, obviously hosting the Olympics and Paralympics, and so most of my crew on the floor are the crew that I had for the six years I hosted Sports World. And I, uh, you know, and I actually originally started out as a reporter on Sports World going back 29 years ago, um, and we were all just saying, God, we missed having magazine length. Um, stories about athletes and getting, you know, yes, the pictures can help tell the story, but hearing from athletes yourself, which is, you know, as I was saying to you before, it's why I love podcasts so much because you can do it in that longer format. But um, it was such a great time. It was, it was like we all miss having that on free-to-air TV, definitely. Um, and, you know, the networks these days, they just won't invest, they won't invest the money. It takes, you know, they're expensive shows to make. Um, they have also convinced themselves that, Everyone in the world only wants to watch things in, you know, three to six minute, maybe seven minutes, maybe eight minutes if you're really lucky increments. Um, and they're getting shorter and shorter because of the demands of social media. But the funny thing is, it's like my favourite thing is to sit and watch a documentary or my favourite thing is to sit and watch a 30-30 or whatever it is out of the States yeah. where they still will spend the money and invest that time. And, um, you know, it was, such, it was such a great program to be involved with and it was such a great time in my life. Like I remember my boys were obviously very young and I was a, a, a single mum and um, I remember just wondering how I was going to do it being away every weekend. And, and Neil Kearney, who is just one of the greatest storytellers in sport of all time, just said to me, don't feel good. You, you will end up cherishing this time, not just because it will feed the sports lover in you, but also you will love the time that you get to to just have by yourself. And there was so much truth in that um, in the sense that, you know, I would do kids sport on a Saturday morning. I'd jump on a plane. I'd stay up all night every night. Um, I'd catch up on every match, every bit of vision that I hadn't seen. I'd have a thousand things. So I could go in at three o'clock in the morning and have a million ideas for the show. We just had great people who were still some of my closest friends today uh, that we would just shoot ideas and, and, you know, work out how we were going to do it. And, uh, and it was such, it was such a fun thing. And then because I was a female in sport, I was a co-host initially with Dermot and then um, I did a year with Sandy Roberts, uh, I think a year with Matt White. And then eventually they were just like, actually, we, we, we just want you to do it yourself. Um, 
And and I think the first night of the first season that I was uh, hosting myself, I actually burst an ovarian cyst in my hotel room at 3 a.m. And um, and I remember thinking I was actually dying. And I rang my mom and I I just said to her, I'm I'm sorry, mom. I think this is it. Um, I actually I can't move and I'm in so much pain. And and you know we've got a doctor coming, but in case this is it, I just want you to know how much I love you. And and I just remember them just going, so there's no plan B. Um, so we're going to get the doctor just to pump you full of painkillers. And if you could just come into work as per normal, we'll just, we, we really need you to stay on air. And so, wow. you know, I did that first show that year, absolutely off my, off my head on painkillers. I think I got to the last segment and just felt really woozy, but, um, and, you know, and in just so much pain. Uh, and had to have a like a special dispensation to fly back home and just remember getting home and just thinking, well, that was weird. But yeah, that, yeah that's just like, this is like TV people don't ever see, you know, they, they talk about all the um, things I haven't think, but you, you're not allowed to be sick. You, you just work. So do it, do it, do this. You've got yeah, a contract. We need you. <laughs> it's fascinating to see what will happen as a legacy of COVID because they actually can't do that at the moment. But that is yeah. the only time in 29 years um, where if somebody's sick, I see them go, okay. Uh, whereas every other time, you know, whether you have you know, had pneumonia, whether you've been sick as can be, whether you've got a migraine and you're vomiting five seconds before you go and say hello to homeowners, you, you are still to work. Wow. So um, it's funny, like we all laugh about it now when you look back on it, but at the time you're just going, okay, this is a little bit weird. <laughs> yeah. Well, a long, long way from the Inga days, basically. How that, that's, um, <laughs> that's changed. But, I mean, this. do you find like... I know with my radio days, if, if I have a preference, I, I want to do live radio. There's nothing what? to me like it in the world. Is it a TV thing as well? Like you want to do live TV wherever you can? 100%. So, and I'm lucky, like I've, I've had such a diverse career, which is probably why I work. So I've worked in news twice. I've worked obviously a lifestyle now for 18 years with Better Homes and Gardens. Um, I've done seven Olympics. This will be my second Paralympic Games I'm about to go into. Um, I've done reality, which is probably my least favourite out of all those formats by a long shot. Um, but you have this incredibly diverse um, approach to, to media and what works and what doesn't work. But I think what you love about live sport is it's the closest feeling you ever get to being an athlete because when it goes well, you have that one shot at it. Um, when it goes well, which is very rare that you ever got off air and think you've had the perfect day, like they are far and few between. But when you come off air and you're really happy with how it went, it is the most satisfying feeling. And as I say, closest that you have to competing well and finishing with something that's measurable. But the same flip side to it, probably the same as an athlete, is when it goes terribly wrong and you haven't been able to get yourself out of trouble and you just know you're going to cop a hiding um, it's it's the most soul destroying feeling, which is why it makes those exhilarating moments feel so good. Um, I think my only fear, like I love it more than anything, and I've just loved being back doing it again for the Olympics, and um, and I'll love it for the Paris. But it's it's uh, I, I worry with society that we and maybe it's the introduction of social media and it's um, how the role it now plays in a lot of people's lives is. What they have lost is the ability to make mistakes. Like I, mm. I literally learned through public humiliation and by making mistakes. And I, I would go into my boss's offices and say, I'd be so frustrated because no one would tell me the right way to do something or what wasn't allowed to be done or 
um, what the rules were of television. If they if they did that, it would make my job really, really a lot easier. Um, instead, I would just do or say something on air and then down my earpiece, they'd be like, what did you just say? Don't you ever say that again? And you'd be so green. You'd be like answering the person in your earpiece live on air because you didn't really get that no one was hearing that other voice. And, and, and so I, I would go in most nights that I would come off, particularly the tenants, which was my first major, major gig with, and just go in and go, right, sit back down with me, you know, back in the day of tape, rewind the tape, watch it with me, tell me what I'm doing right, tell me what I can improve on. Like, like as an athlete, that's what, that's what you do with a coach. You can follow direction, but you need someone to tell you that. And what, what has continually amazed me over the years is, but I do that to anyone. So I, I try and mentor as many people as I can. One, because I've learned over time, there's enough roles for us all. There's enough work for everyone. So it doesn't matter if it's a male or a female coming through. There's enough work out there. But also, too, to save them having to go through that humiliation, which is so much more amplified these days because of social media, you just want to help people not stuff up on air. And, and even and if they do, try to get them to understand it's really not the end of the world. Like you'll wake up the next day. Um, everything will be okay. But you, you've got to, you've got to, you learn that over the years and you learn that as you get a thicker skin. But for those people in that moment, it can be such a cruel and, you know, almost career-defining, life-defining moment. And, and sometimes I think we're so quick to judge these days that there's actually something nice. Like probably more people come up to me and say they have enjoyed watching me over 29 years because they remember how bad I was and they've enjoyed watching you improve and get more confident over time and they feel like they've been part of that. And we just kind of don't have a space for that for people to learn and for people to occasionally stuff up. Like all our regional networks, which are so, so important to the fibre of what we can teach people coming through, are just becoming smaller and smaller and almost non-existent. And so that's another avenue where they're, they're not given to learn. So I think, um, I, I, I personally think that's a little sad with it, but yes, that's a long answer to say live TV out of everything I do, it is by far and away my favourite thing that I do for all those reasons and more. It's, I mean, it's a whole other topic in itself with everything that you're touching on there. But I mean, it's, it's kind of the interesting landscape of, of the media right now, isn't it? That there does seem to be lesser and lesser opportunities, say, for traditional television, as you're saying, mm. sort of these local markets. Even radio yeah. is is closing, you know, and, and you talk about reality TV, it's kind of, you know, a lot of traditional roles are being lost now to the, the five minutes of fame reality TV stars. But on the flip side of that, you're on a podcast right now. This is a new mm. medium. YouTube, you know, online sort yeah, of yeah. channels and that where people can cut their cut their teeth with that. I mean, it's probably a, a, a very in-depth question that we could probably really delve into. But, I mean, do you feel that had your media career started today that maybe it was something you could go on to sort of the success that you you have gone on or is it just completely oh, no, impossible I would to say that? I would have been crucified, Ben. I would have been absolutely destroyed. I don't think I would have had the career that I've had because you would not be allowed to make as many mistakes. And then, but I've got nothing against those reality stars that turn that, you know, 15 minutes of fame into a career because they still have to work hard and they have to get their foot in the door somehow. They won't still be there in 29 years unless they're any good at what they're doing. So I, I don't have even a problem with any of that. I, I think my, my, my issue is, you know, when I started out, we would have um, work experience kids along all the time, all the time to jobs, to to events, to, to things like an Olympics coverage. And, and 
they could just sit back and watch and learn because not everyone wants to be on camera. They might at the start, but then some of them work out they want to be in production and some of them want to be statisticians and some of them want to be the research and some of them want to be maybe a cameraman or someone in audio. And so they they were given a chance to stand back and watch and to absorb and then decide what really caught their attention. These days, for a thousand reasons, but most likely because it's just easier to say a blanket note, they're not allowed out they're not allowed to so how to like I get asked all the time whether it be athletes or young kids who are studying like how do I get that foot in the door and I feel like what we're what we're kind of missing now is what would be great is to give them a foot in the door um give them a lot of them a foot in the door because because there's going to be a point where you know I'm going to be a crusty old demon and I'm just going to roll onto my balcony at the farm and then I'll never come back to the big smoke (laughs) all right and and we, we should be we should have that next lot of of talent that are ready to go just to, to jump into that, who have gone through all the good and bad and seen it up close so that they have manageable expectations about what it is. Well, just saying, Joe, when that day comes for you on, on the farm, you've got my uh, contact <laughs> I've details got your details. Now. So uh, just maybe don't listen to some of the segments we've had on during the Olympics about Channel 7. Just ignore those. Um, oh, yes, but you're are... a beer where it's always easy to criticise, isn't it? Exactly, I mean, the fact, exactly. The fact you know, of the know... matter, the fact of the matter, which is hilarious, <laughs> I say to people, if you actually look, which we do, you look at a schedule of all the sports and you look at all the things and we have breakdowns of what sports will be watched and how many eyeballs will be on it. At the end of the day, as much as you would love to have a split screen that had, you know, let's say 20, 28 sports and you could have all 28 of them on your camera and people could pick and choose, we're not there yet. This time around where you could at least stream sport, we're getting yeah. a step closer to it. So each time it gets better. But at the end of the day, You've got to you've got to pick one thing. You've got to update five other things, but you've got to be able to point them, which we could do now, which you couldn't even do years ago. So, like we, what, what part of doing Olympics is you just learn, you just cop so much. It's a sport in you. itself, isn't it? Let's criticize it the is. broadcaster. It is. Yeah, yeah. But it's but it's it's like it's everything. But it's just like honestly, if you were sitting here and you had to make the call, I'd love to hear what you would do differently. Which when you have all the information and all the knowledge. What would you do differently? It's it's fun because we, we would sort of um, during our daily coverage we have the we call because we're sort of a co-production with a with a Canadian co-host so we kind of we call it the CBC slash Channel Seven fails but we we realise it's not really the fails it's more of the the fun parts because I think what we found fun is that it's not really the fails it's just we would write down quotes from from the commentators and the hosts that we found funny and it was just it wasn't that we were taking the piss it was more of like this is actually hilarious or taken out of context like it's it's quite a fun moment and yeah. I mean one of my favorite moments of the entire games and is ba- I mean Basil to me and is just an absolute god um like his whole it's all going gobbledygook for Zach's gobbledygook like, things <laughs> like that like just sell it for me that it just kind of goes there and don't yeah. even get me started on Bruce I've got a whole section to talk oh, about I Bruce but Brucey. it's it's just such a it's 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 just a fascinating thing and we would often talk about because I guess in the last decade in Australia we've sort of been lucky or unlucky depending on how you look at to see all three commercial networks broadcast at least one Olympics and every broadcast to me has their pros and cons and there's going to be things you're going to you know criticize and there's going to be things you praise and as you said though it's all well and good for someone like me to sit here and go well this is crap show this show that but until you're in that position it's kind of it's obviously easy for me to say but not easy for me to understand how difficult it actually is yeah and i think i think if um if the world as i say the world was perfect like i looked at that big screen that we had behind us for the olympics and that we'll have for the paralympics and the first day we walked in they just had all these boxes and it had 
just vision in every single box and it wrapped around the whole studio. And in my head, I was like, see, that's what I want in my lounge room. Yeah. yeah. I actually don't, I don't want to have to choose between swimming and 10 other sports that are on at that point. I'd love to actually watch them all. And that was actually funny. The amount of people would say to me, oh my God, I, I, I literally was watching something on seven. I had seven made on another screen. I had my seven plus thing um, going and I was just flicking between the sports and the kids were going, no, I want to watch this. And I, and I thought, but even in even in four years' time, that's the difference. You know, I can remember yeah. going to the Beijing Olympics, and that was the first time that um, in the uh, in your media accommodation, you were given more than one channel. So you had actually like they, I think they had uh, forty one channels, and some of them would just be a camera that was on the um, high jump bar. Right, that's all you'd see is a wow. close up of the bar, and so what would happen is, you know, as when you see athletics live, like it's a, your mind gets blown when you go to a, a athletics finals night because you're watching one event here. They've got athletes who are running around with their flags who've just won an event there. You've got the pole vault about to start. You've got, you know, a shot putter about to do something, and so you you just like your head swiveling the whole time that you you're in a stadium. And that's exactly what's happening for the people who are trying to work out to the second and, and doesn't always stick to the second. And um, that's actually what surprised me with Tokyo. Tokyo was so far out from the official timings of what we were given um, that it was just like you you were just gambling sometimes as to where you were getting. But I can remember sitting in my hotel room and just sitting up way too late than I should, just watching random things like the high, the, the high jump bar. And what would happen is you'd watch someone jump, but every now and then you'd hear a cheer from somewhere else in the stadium and you, you knew it wasn't the high jump because you're watching the bar and then you're just madly <laughs> flicking through all the other channels to find the moment that the crowd was cheering about, which is pretty much what it's like putting your Olympics coverage together. And, and you know, like we joke with the athletes. There's so many athletes that go, ah, but we wouldn't even get a start. Like we got, you know, some of the sailors in Tokyo. But the fact, the fact of the matter was the host broadcasters decided they weren't going to cover sailing this time. They were only going to do a 5 minutes package each day. Wow. Um, and yeah, and then we had those moments like, you know, we had Matt Wern, we had the 470 crew who obviously won well before they'd done it. And to try and bring families in, we've got a camera on the family. And the families are like, are you joking? We, we've known two days ago that he won. So the reactions were <laughs> really underwhelming. And, and you're kind of like trying to do that. It's just like, it's all part of it. Like you're not ever going to get it probably 100% right to keep everyone happy. Like I, I remember getting an email through this and the guy was blowing up because We'd shown uh, Logan Martin winning um, in the BMX uh, freestyle. And, he, you know, that was such an amazing day. And he was amazing. And I thought his backstory was amazing, having, you know, committed to building um, the course in his house and all the rest of it. And, and you know, on our coverage, we actually had only gone to it live. So we didn't see how many times it got replayed afterwards. And then, of course, the news runs separately to the production and Sunrise runs separately. So for a viewer who's sitting at home watching all day, every day, I can get that they get frustrated. And this email came through about, how repetitive it was, repetitive this and repetitive that and repetitive that. And, so, and he was like, and I can't even find them, you know, men's 100 metre final and that's great theatre. And so I just said, oh, hey, mate, you know, it's like 3 a.m. I've just come into work. I've just logged on to 7 Plus. I've gone down here, go down here, find this here. There's the men's 100 metre final. And I agree, it's great drama and all the rest of it. But when there's an Australian, like we actually kind of get caned if you don't show an Australian, particularly if they're winning a gold medal. Um, but anyhow, here's what you're after. And then he came back again and he's like, it's so repetitive, so repetitive, so repetitive. And I just said to him, is it as repetitive as these emails? 
<laughs> Burn, drop mic. I like it. But it's, it's just like, seriously, like look at what we're saying and what we're doing and look what you're saying and what you're doing. We're both doing exactly the same thing and we're not even in charge of what Sunrise and the news are doing. Yeah, wow. The, the thing that's fascinating too is that just, again, you're talking about sort of how far we've come. I mean, we've talked a lot during sort of the games about, yeah, how far we've come as a nation in terms of what we can see. I remember back during Athens when it was a, a big deal that SBS, I think, picked up some of the sort of the side sports. So you could be at, you know, midnight and watching the handball and volleyball, things that we would never see in Australia. Then Beijing, I remember, that was the first games I remember being able to watch things on my phone. I remember mm-hmm. being out for dinner and, you know, grainy little coverage on my small little <laughs> Nokia, whatever it was at the time. Going, wow, I can watch us win a gold medal in rowing. And then yeah. I know Nine had it in, in London, but I think that was when they shared it with Foxtel so you could have the yeah. app. Then obviously you you had the app on Channel 7 in Rio and then it developed. Yeah, but they charged in Rio. The difference is totally They did. I remember that because I paid because it was like. Yeah. And that. It was like, come on, you can't do that. Which now, I mean, it just, it just you know, begs a question. What What's next? You know, if like well, Paris, honest, by the time that, we get to Brisbane, like what are we going to be How exciting to? could that possibly be? Like to me, that, that yeah. is actually great. Maybe people will have, I mean, they'll still find something to whinge about, but they might actually have their dream coverage of of what they can go to. But, you know, we're about to go in Sunday, we start rehearsing for the Paralympics, right? And it's been amazing. We've been organising all these Zoom chats with team leaders and Paralympians and, um, you know, people of of, um, significance in the Paralympic movement. And you think about where they started in 64. But all the current people that we have, so we've got 50% able bodies and 50% Paralympians um, hosting and reporting on the coverage, which we're really proud of because like the Rio Paralympics that I worked on is hands down my favourite thing out of anything I've ever done over all the years with all the amazing things I've been exposed to. And to hear the Paralympians that we've got reporting for us and commentating, like Priya Cooper, one of our greatest ever Paralympic swimmers, Annie Williams hosting who you know, Paralympic gold medalist, um, Katrina Webb, who won, you know, many Paralympic gold medals in athletics. They can all and all talk about a time not that long ago where they were only allowed to compete during the ad breaks, where, where you know, they would be ready for their biggest moment of their life, knowing what it meant to them, and they would be on the blocks and they'd watch the cameraman either flicking through his text messages or packing up the tracks next to the pool or packing up the tracks next to the athletics or them saying, can you hurry up because we're coming back from an ad break now. Like they're going to get 14 hours of live sport every day as well as up to 16 sports streamed. Um, And you just kind of go, when you hear, like I was talking to Katrina Webb the other day and she's saying, how important it is to see athletes with a disability that it's an obvious disability like you might have with Kurt or an Annie who's missing one of the lower limb of her left arm or she said like that's so important for young kids with a disability and and when you think you know there's 15 to 20 percent of every Australian will have a disability of some sort but for her it was cerebral palsy she didn't even know she had cerebral palsy until she was on a netball scholarship at the Institute of Sports she knew that something wasn't quite right with the body she couldn't explain a lot what was happening with her body. But she was actually um, finally discovered she had cerebral palsy and she learned how to understand what that meant, how it would impact her life then and all through the future. And she, but she's got a disability that most people looking at her wouldn't be able to visually see. And that comes with another layer. So, yeah, people with an obvious disability who just deal with judgment and, you know, really insensitive comments and quite often really crazy bureaucracy making decisions that make their life incredibly difficult. But then you have the people with an invisible disability and you hear them talk about what it means for them to see somebody who's representing them on the camera. 
Yeah. And somebody who they can see and relate to when you think there's going to be a child born with cerebral palsy every 15 hours in Australia. So if you hear her talk about it, she just, she started to break down and cry. And in my head, I was like, okay, so I just need to be clear on this, Katrina. When we come to you for a swimming preview, which we will at some point, let's not talk about the swimming. We'll get to the swimming, but let's talk about this because that's that's what people need to hear. And that's that's where a broadcast, whether people want to criticise it or like it or hate it or whatever, it's where it's, again, bigger than the sport and what it can mean to a family in that instant where their life changes or whether it's an athlete who's had a terrible, or you know, any person in Australia has had a terrible accident and they actually are seeing people who've been there, who've had those dark times, who have had to change all of their life dreams and plans and and their day-to-day activities and yet they've still found a way to shine a light and have hope and a future and, and opportunities through sport. So to me it's like everything that, you know, we opened up the Olympics ironically telling the story of Kaisa Kakibara, which is an amazing story to tell and say a story and all the drama that ensued with it. The BMX was uh, unbelievable in Tokyo, but there was a part of me that was going, that's every Paralympian story. That's actually sometimes a third of what a Paralympian story is. Like you've got Sam McIntosh who broke his back, learned how to live in a chair. Years later when he was quite comfortable with what he was doing, was at a, at a party with mates, slipped in his chair, chair fell back, broke his back a second time. You know, like imagine going through that again and, and actually ending up with a, an impairment that was even more severe than the first time around. And yeah. as I say, every athlete on that team has that. So I, I think as much as it's so easy to criticise everything, thank God we're going in the right direction with with the way that we can go with it. Because at the end of the day, anyone who loves sport and anyone who's working on a broadcast, whether they be a commentator or a host or behind this, they just love storytelling. And that is still the most powerful thing that you can get out of sport, whether it's a good story, a bad story, a story of redemption. You know, it, it, it all comes back to the storytelling. And that's that's why I love sport so much. I'm sort of the the page of, I guess, pioneers and, and people to sort of look up to and sort of groundbreaking moments. One thing, going back to sort of going memories in terms of, you know, me remembering you from TV, but... Salt Lake City, 2002, you were the, the first woman to host a, to be the sole host of an Olympics. I don't know if that's just Australia or around the world, uh, whether or not kind of it's, it's that distinction. But, I mean, if I have to think about an Olympics, it really sold me on an, an Olympics, particularly a winter Olympics. It was Salt Lake. I was just absolutely glued. I mean, what was that experience like? And, I mean, how, how did you kind of take that, that history that you were making, that you were the first female kind of sole anchor of a, an Olympic Games coverage? Look, I was proud of it then and I've done it for five of my seven Olympics um, and and for the Paralympics that I did in Rio. I, I'm Having said that, I'm more wrapped to be co-hosting the Paralympics with Kurt Fernley this time around than, than you could possibly imagine because I think particularly with the Paralympics, we, sh- we should be um, having Paralympians there talking about their movement and their thing. It was an incredible honour. It's something I'm really, really proud of. Um, and we changed the way uh, Winter Olympics were done in this this country up until that point because we realised it was going to be a tough sell anywhere in Australia, which, you know, February in Australia and in pretty much most places is a stinking hot, almost unbearable, suffocating heat. Um, and so we decided, you know, everything had always been done in studios and everything had always been done, you know, like we'd always seen broadcast done. And so our bosses said, we, we want you to do it, but we don't want it to be a normal broadcast. We want to just 
We don't care if we, you know, you have to get up at 2 a.m. We're going to find the most beautiful locations that we can so that even if someone's not remotely interested in the stories, we know we can tell them the stories once they're hooked. But we need to we need to show them a beautiful vista. We need to show them something where they can escape from that, you know, mind-numbingly horrible heat or humidity, depending on where you are in Australia. So that's what we did. And then we just made it about the storytelling. And we knew we had to make it about more than just the Australian storytelling because um, we had so few Australian athletes back in Salt Lake compared to even the sports that are represented now and the athletes that, that, that are there now. And they've come along in leaps and bounds as well. But we knew we had to actually um, very succinctly tell a story that would hook people into some of the biggest names in, in Winter Olympics worldwide. And it's actually one of the really great things with the winters is you get a lot more of an opportunity to do that. You also have athletes that have not had anywhere near as much exposure as a lot of their summer games counterparts have. Um, and it's probably a little bit why I love the Paris as well, um, because, you know, they're all just everyday people who are working. I mean, the winter's got off and they were working two and three jobs yeah. to follow their passion. And they were so grateful that anyone would shine a light on them that they just, you know, like you'd say, hey, look, we're going to be another 45 minutes to get off the mountain. They'd be like, you know, why we'll wait down the bottom of the hill for you? Like you just, yep. just wouldn't get that with the summer games in the past. So um, it was it was just a joy to work on, uh, as was Torino. I mean, Salt Lake had its challenges because it was obviously post-September 11 and security was just outrageous and you, you just had to allow about an extra two or three hours to get everywhere, which is funny because that was less than what you needed for Rio for public transport. Um, but, uh, <laughs> you know, like it, um, it, it was just, it felt like, probably like it did for a lot of Australians, it just felt like a, a different world. Uh, you know, it was it was magic. And um, and so, yeah, it holds a, holds, holds a special place. But also for that history, I think a lot of people forget how long I've been around or how the variety of things that I've done or that you've hosted the Australian Open 17 times or that you've done things like people, because, you know, the stuff that they see on a week-to-week basis in a lot of people's minds takes a precedent. It's only the sports fans like yourself that actually even remember that. So it's always it's always nice when it gets acknowledged. I'm always really proud. Well, I like to refer to the Winter Olympics as the real Olympics because I'm, the, <laughs> I'm a massive winter fan. And the, the, the greatest thing about Tokyo being delayed as a year is that we've got, what, six months till Beijing or less than that yeah. now. But, I mean, the thing about Salt Lake, though, like it's just, I mean, any Australian Olympic fan will remember just the history we had with both, uh, you know, Stephen and Alyssa obviously getting yeah. getting the golds and the circumstances. I mean, to show my weird fanboyness of it, uh, Joe, when I went to Salt Lake City, I went to a Utah Jazz game. I didn't give two shits that I was there for a Utah Jazz game. I was in the arena that Stephen Bradbury won a freaking gold medal. I'm, I'm there like fanboying. Where, where's the banner on the roof? Australian Olympic history, Craig. It wasn't there. I was offended. <laughs> I love that. But, you know, it's so, it's so funny because people always, you know, talk about the Bradbury moment, the Bradbury moment. But, and you just go, he was still there. He was oh, there yeah. for every race. Like Amazing like, story. Again, such rare air and such an amazing thing that he could do. And he he's so amazingly good natured about where it kind of has landed in vernacular and um and and even people's minds as to you know sometimes they're a bit dismissive with what he did but it's like mate that is so extraordinary what he did and it was yeah. so exciting at the time and he was such a great athlete and I'm glad 
it actually hasn't been the only thing that's defined him in his life. But well, it's he, it's so he like he's one of the best autobiographies I've ever yeah, read. His story, absolutely. And like, the thing that people forget about Stephen, of course, too, is he was a member of that relay team that won a bronze back in Lillehammer, or created yeah. history for winning our first ever medal and what world champion. He's like best yeah. in the world for most of the nineties. So that all the gets story, gets yeah, exactly. Because everyone of, fell over, so right? Three so, races. <laughs> yeah, and then Survivor fans remembering me as being pretty rubbish on Australian Survivor, but that's a whole <laughs> story. But yeah, it's and that's what. Like I just have so many memories of those Olympics. We we were we had the honor of having Jamie Soleil on the show, and kind of that was one of my oh, biggest wow. memories of kind of the whole Soleil Peltier controversy in that. Yeah. And then obviously you know what Apollo Ono was gunning for about five gold in those Olympics, yeah. and Bradbury prevented him from getting one. Alyssa kind of you know getting the gold in the aerials after so many near misses from people like Jackie Cooper and Kirsty Marshall. I mean it was just. It was an incredible time. But also the time. legacy that she then sort of kicked off with that yeah. was quite extraordinary as well. And and then you hear, like, again, they're probably actually a little bit like the Paralympians. Like you hear their stories of what they've overcome injury-wise and been brave enough to get back up. Like I'm the world's biggest scaredy cat, scared of heights, scared of, you know, my own shadow. Um, <laughs> you know, I'm a terrible passenger in a car. I... I just look at what they do and those split seconds of, of even having the awareness of where they are when they're flipping and, and turning and twisting in the air and putting into that, judging the weather, judging, um, you know, whether or not they can actually see the the points that they measure themselves on, whether or not that's actually visible to them, um, you know, whether or not the conditions are going to be great when they land, whether it's going to be icy or whether it's like, you just, there's, there's just so much that make, you know, like I guess like all sport, if they're, they're really brilliant at it. They make it look so easy. It's not until you put on a pair of skis and try and, you know, get a two-inch jump off them and land in something other than amazingly perfect snow that you have an appreciation for. Oh, yeah. Just I tried skiing earlier this year. I was I was off them in two seconds. I'm like, this is bullshit. I'm not doing this. What is, like, what is this? <laughs> but don't you reckon that's like, to me, that's, that's my favourite. Every event that I had to pick out that was my favourite in the world to watch, it has just been people who make, what is actually extraordinarily difficult looks so effortless and so yeah. beautiful and so like, like they're made for that moment just to be for that moment to be captured, which is why I still do love broadcasting television wise, because you can capture those moments. Like out of all of the Sydney Olympic moments, still one of my favorite images is Kathy coming around in the semi-final around the bends in the rain. I said pouring with rain, wasn't it? I remember that, yeah. Pouring with rain, right? And, you know, you have all the emotion of the final and you have, like, for me, the best part of the final was her actually slumping to the track when the realisation hit of what she'd done. And, you know, all all that thing is just like, they're, they're, they're like little moments that is like a kaleidoscope of things that gets just seared into your brain. And and it's why people can refer to them 20 years after the fact. Yeah. Because, you know, they, they stay with you. But, the, you know, the things that stay with you, like, they, you know, he's now become a good mate, but Scotty McGrory and Brett Aiken out of the Sydney Olympics, that stayed with me because that was one of the hardest interviews that I ever had to do, talking to both of them about something that was so deeply personal that was made so public. Um, and what they had to overcome to be able to compartmentalise to do and then having become a parent and realise how extraordinarily um, strong they both had to be and yet getting to know them, realising actually that they really weren't that strong. They were struggling so enormously and yet we still got to ride that whole wave of what they were going through. Um, it's, it's, what, it's what makes it magic. It's what, it, what's what makes those stories just... Yeah, they stay with you. They stay in your heart. They stay in your mind. I've got to ask you just quickly, while I'm on the topic of, of magic and the Winter Olympics, Turin, Dale Begg-Smith, utter <laughs> legend, 
did you get the chance to interview him? And do, can you help us? Where is he? Where is Dale Beck-Smith? I don't think anyone knows where he is. He's gone back to I his private island somewhere. I think he's counting his money. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, I mean, he was, at the, I will say this. Did we get to interview him? Yes, I got to interview him. Was it a great interview? Absolutely not. He no. gave me bonus. <laughs> I um, remember during the nine coverage in Vancouver, Eddie Maguire no. so hard trying to get stuff out of him and it was like, you know, blood from a stone. <laughs> Absolutely from a stone. But but the only thing that I found quite endearing with him um, was behind the scenes, you won't hear an athlete say a bad word about him. Oh, no. So what all. he did behind the scenes uh, and what he's done for development, even even post his personal career, is quite extraordinary in in Australia. Um, so he's he's considered by the athletes as one of the most generous people, not only in finances in the sports that they're generally having to self fund, but also with his knowledge and his time and his guidance and his mentorship. So as much as he's Definitely up there with one of the worst interviews that I've had to go give. For, it's like you actually cannot believe that. Like it takes a skill to not say anything, um, more than one word answers, which technically is them qualifying what they need to do for them to be as part of the team and all of the guidelines, but actually not give anything away. Like you almost have an admiration that they can do that. But I always, I was always a little bit fond of him just because there wasn't an athlete that said anything negative about him. And, yeah. and I just thought, you know, you have your reasons. And, and yeah, you know, we all know how he initially had started his uh, fortune and it was a bit dubious and I get why he probably didn't want to answer it because it would have, it actually would have probably taken the limelight off the whole team. So I even had admiration for the fact that he so tightly kept a lid on, on that because I feel like he did that from what I can gather from all the athletes. I feel like he did that not for any extra benefit for himself because he's already ridiculously successful, but he actually did that to protect the team. So I actually have respect for his integrity. I remember when Britt Cox was on on the show. and I love yeah, Britt Cox. Did we, you just we, love just, her? She's like oh, amazing. the most Absolutely. amazing human being on the planet. Just just incredible. Um, And, yeah, her just her admiration of talking him up. And it's the, the great thing is, too, is I love it when you kind of you do the trivia question, like who is Australia's most successful Winter Olympian? Who are the two that are the most, our most successful Winter Olympians? People might get Tora Bride and like a third guess. They always go for Bradbury or they go for Lydia or things like that. But then when you go, okay, well, I've got Tora. Great, fantastic. Who's who's the male athlete? No one ever gets. I'm like, how do you not yeah. know this? <laughs> <laughs> but but that's but that's also that shows you how the news cycle works. Yeah, you know, like yeah. um, you you actually have to have the athletes to give you something for them to remain in the hearts, whether whether or not it's something that they necessarily want to give um, in that moment. But that's why those that's why those raw moments, like you think Sally Pearson. Oh, yeah. Not even necessarily a goal, but when she, she got a silver, right? And there was that. One of my most favourite interviews I've ever seen in my oh, life. Hilarious. Yeah. Just hilarious. Yeah. And funny because you just like you just go, for all the sports these days where the athletes are so media trained, it was just so raw and emotive. And, yeah, she had seriously shocked herself and she was bloody pumped with herself. And it was just joyous to watch, right? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, in those moments, like if you talk to Sal now, she's like, oh, my God, what was I thinking? <laughs> yeah, yes, it was great. But now I look back and I'm like, could I have not toned it down? But thank God she did it because it actually it, it actually gave her a place in, if you love sport, into that sporting folklore forever. Yeah. Um, and by the time she won the gold, she was so much more polished and so much more, um, you know, practised at, at the responses. You never saw that rawness to the same level. 
Well, you think about that too with someone like Jane Savile, who famously yeah. had the whole I want a gun to shoot myself moment. And then you talk about yeah, that emotion four years later, getting a bronze. And we talk so much up on this show how uh, we love it when we see an athlete showing emotion for, you know, not only a bronze, maybe a fifth place, a personal best, things like that. And just Athens, I think I bawled my eyes out seeing yeah. Jane cry on that podium for a bronze medal. It was amazing. But, but again, she's one of the athletes that I absolutely love because obviously we re- revisited Sydney um, last year, the Sydney 2000 Olympics, and she's an athlete who that moment could have absolutely crawled alive and it has not defined her in any way, shape or form. Um, and she, you know, she talks about how she saw the official that gave her the final red card as she was heading into the tunnels and and she basically, you know, saw them at breakfast the next day and they had a laugh about it. And she's like, look, you know, obviously you're not my favourite person, but I get it. Because, she un- again, she understood the rules of, of the sport that you grow up with. Um, and I ha- I love and have so much admiration for her that she's realised there's the rest of her life to go and live and, and don't get so hung up on that moment and let it define you. She really hasn't let that define her. But, you know, if, if you look even more recently, uh, you know, and I went on there and I said, I turned up at three o'clock in the morning. I said, oh, my God, I've watched this Andrew Gay's interview five times that he did on Shinwa, Shinya, um, and he, he, I've cried five times that like, we need to play it. And they went, oh, no, but the next show has bags it. And I'm like, yeah. And I looked at Luke Darcy, who I was co-hosting with, and I was like, let's just talk about it anyway because if we talk about it, they're probably going to have to show it. So we just talked <laughs> about it because he came into work and I'm like, Luke, watch this. And Luke's like, I don't even normally cry, but I want to cry. And then he said it to his wife and his wife just said, I'm bawling. And so we were just showing people because, you know, again, I think one of the lines he said is you don't have to win a gold medal to to actually go on, you know, even though it's the most obvious word in reality and in a sport journey, but it's, you know, to then hear him list the DNA of all the coaches who'd been before and all the players who'd been before and everyone who'd been a part of why it was so important to that current crop. And, yeah, you know, it was just the most raw, magic five minutes of TV, but he was able to still articulate so beautifully and eloquently what it meant. And it was, you know, I saw a picture a week later of his dad still wearing the Australian shoes um, that the team members got just up on like a um, like a little footstool and he just had it up there and he was still just looking up and smiling at Andrew because Andrew had spoken about, you know, the role his dad had played in basketball in Australia and you know, when they started out and there were only 200 people registered and I reckon the saddest part of the Tokyo Olympics and I know he had all his reasons and all the rest of it for it, but I think he will... I don't know if you'll ever reflect enough, but I hope you'll reflect one day. But I reckon if Ben Simmons had just been part of it and allowed himself to to embrace it in the way that so many of our other fantastic stars that play in the NBA and have, have had so much success in the NBA, I think I think it actually would have helped him probably not out his career, but I reckon more it would have helped him as as a person just yeah. to to have something that means more than what is self-combusting in your mind in that time I think it would have given him great perspective so that's my one my one regret is actually not a regret for me it's a regret for him um that he that he actually made that decision not to be part of it yeah no we, we talked a bit about Ben during uh, our coverage sort of wondering how things would have gone differently but um yeah no great story it's that was that was the that and the Jess Fox gold I think at the end of the day were the ones that when we reflected on the moments, it was like, what were your favourite? And like, you know, obviously so many to choose from, such a great game for Australia, but it was like, yeah, Jess Fox cracking that goal. I don't think I've been that nervous in a, an Olympic event in a long time. And then, yeah, seeing the boom is finally getting a getting a medal was, was great. Well, Jess was great because, you know, for Jess, like I, I, watched, I watched the K1 and I sobbed 
for 20 minutes in my hotel room because just knowing how knowing her very well knowing how how graciously she answered the same questions over and over and over and and then I was actually a little bit furious because you know one of our journalists asked you know and can you get the gold at the end of the first interview and I thought oh far out come on like aren't we better than that like you know in the same way I hate metal tallies and made that very well known yet again during this coverage and surprisingly didn't get in trouble this time which is unlike every other games um uh it, it was just that thing of going you know for her to get the c1 gold it means that there was never any doubt she was the best paddler, male or female. It was already been decided by people in that world and people outside of that world. And she'd won 30 World Cups and 10 World Championships. And, you know, she was such an amazing athlete. And she already had, you know, three Olympic medals by that point going into it. But to win that gold, it, I saw because she did never has to be asked that question. She never has to yeah. be defined by that question. She never has to be asked do you regret not getting the gold? You know, it's like you could see that relief, that relief when she crossed the line, when she realised it, and then when she was hugging her mum and her sister. And it was just, it was just, it was, for me, it was more like, oh, my God, thank God, this is not going to haunt you and be over you for the rest of your life. Because we've all been to sportsmen's nights and sportswomen nights where you, you watch people who maybe have a moment where they haven't quite lived up to what the public's expectation is without the public really knowing the full story of what they may have been through. And they answer politely that same question over and over and over again. And I just think they're so gracious. They're so generous. Um, I'm not sure I would be that generous in that moment. Like, <laughs> like you just like, especially with some of the people who are asking you, like, you must look at them and go, really? Tell me how many yeah. times you've been in a buddy kayak or a canoe and how many times you've done anything yeah. like that. And yet your, your, your first question to me is, can you win? Like, mm. can you put that demon to bed? Um, they are... They endlessly amaze me how awesome they are and how generous they are with not only what their talent but also their generosity of spirit with what they have to put up with. We wrap up all our interviews with a series of fun questions. I'm really looking forward to it, actually, because I think you're our first non-athlete to be able to, to answer them. So we'll get to them. Well, you are an athlete. Sorry, as in, as in you know, I, I'm just <laughs> no defending you now. No taken, Uh-oh. Ben. Uh-oh. <laughs> Jeez, I'm not an athlete, mate. I would drown in a bathtub these days, so you are absolutely fine. Commonwealth Games bronze medalist, Ben. Come on now. Oh, yes. Yes. Check yourself. so much in my life. I'll tell you one story, Ben. My boys were in year seven and year six, and they came home from school one day, and they were like, hey, Mum, I've got to ask you a question. Were you a swimmer or a swimmer swimmer? And I said, what's a swimmer swimmer? And Jess goes, I don't know. And I said, well, how about I tell you what I did, and then you tell me what you think. And so I ran through a few things, and he went, Oh, that's embarrassing. I said, <laughs> I said why? He goes, oh, because um, they were talking about you as a, he said, oh, I think that makes you a swimmer, swimmer. But when I heard them talking about you, I said they had the wrong person because I'd never actually seen you hop in a pool. <laughs> and I thought that was a very healthy um, measure that my kids weren't, that I wasn't one living in some past, you know, hey, I once won a couple of games or world championship medal and numerous world cups and that they'd never actually realised I was a swimmer. So I thought that was actually wow. a very healthy thing. So I'm allowed to be called a non-athlete. I'm okay. Okay, all right. right <laughs> well, I, I won't check myself. But uh, just a couple of quick ones before we get to those. Now, um, you talk about questions that are asked a lot i'm sure this yeah. is one that's asked a lot to you you've been to seven olympics and been part of seven olympic coverage coverages um you've mentioned the the rio paralympics as, as maybe your favorite experience but besides that i mean sort of what what has been sort of your favorite olympics that you were were a part of uh to be honest i enjoyed tokyo as much as i did the sydney olympics if we're talking purely olympics like paralympics is next level um olympics I have always loved and I've always been like you, a bit of an Olympophile and grew up watching it and loved it. 
Sydney Olympics was amazing because I got to co-host with Andrew Jaddo the morning show. So we did it um, a week that. out and then the two weeks of it. And, and at the time we were kind of going, oh, you know, you got Roy and HG and they're going to get all these athletes and they were such rock stars of the game. But we ended up loving our shift because you either had the athletes still coming in either quite inebriated <laughs> or they'd had time to reflect. And so you ended up getting a very different interview from the athletes the morning after. So it was just the best fun. And we were in an amazing location, which was with thanks to Sap 7 and Sack, some executive, and they had some house down on the water. They had the opera house <laughs> and the Harvey Bridge in the background. So we just took over his empty house. And it was, you know, Andrew was a great co-host. It was outstanding. Um, obviously, the winters are special because that was so different and magical. Um, Athens was because we did it overnight. We were in the wrong time zone. So we'd finish off air every single night and it would actually be morning. So you'd just come out in broad daylight and you'd just be wired to the hilt and going, oh, and now, now we need to go to sleep in broad daylight. Um, Rio was an absolute debacle of an Olympics to, to be at. I have so much admiration for how the athletes handled all the extra challenges that were many and varied. Um, and then you get to Tokyo and none of us were sure how it would feel because originally we were going to go to Tokyo and we thought it was going to be amazing. Um, and yet even Bruce came to me at one point and he said, Quixie, he said, I just can't believe it. He said, I, I didn't know how I'd feel not being there, but I actually think I like this. This is one of my favourites. And I said, Bruce, wow. I, I put it up there with Sydney. And he said, me too. We're going to have this moment going, wow. And part of that, like Luke Darcy, the co-host with, was just so awesome and you know, we we organised to have co-hosts because we, when we were preparing for the Olympics, we didn't actually imagine the Olympics were going to go ahead. We were preparing for potentially 16 days of highlights and 16 days of, of tape pieces. We, you know, we prepared for 32 days of content, um, but we were expecting that entire swathes of sports and potentially countries were going to go out because of COVID. So, the fact that they pulled off those games, you always knew it was going to be something special and it was it would it far exceeded that. Just a quick follow-up on that then. Does that Sorry, that wasn't answer? a quick answer, was it? No, no, no. no by all means. <laughs> quick answers on this show, I don't know what they are either. I just say that to be polite, let's be honest. But um I mean, does it spur you on kind of with the memories of Sydney now that Brisbane obviously have twenty thirty-two? Right. I mean, we've got the chance in a, of a lifetime in Australia to have two games in in our lifetime, which is yeah. incredible. So I mean memories of Sydney spur you on to Brisbane, I can imagine. I, look, I'm, I'm probably going to be 480 years old come Brisbane. I'm not. I'm not sure that I will still be. I mean, if they'll have me, I'll be there with bells on, or I might be in a different capacity. But I think the thing that I loved about the Brisbane announcement was if you go back through all the profiles of all the Olympians, or you go back through all the profiles of the Paralympians, and you see how many of the current crop of athletes were inspired by previous Olympic games, I couldn't help just having so many moments just reflecting how many things that we were watching in Tokyo and how many things we will watch over the next few weeks with the Paralympic Games that will actually inspire athletes, that will inspire, even if it's a young child um, who's watching who might be, say, 11 by the time 2032 comes around, but they're going to be, they're going to, they're going to fall in love with the Olympics and the Paralympics. They're going to fall in love with not the IOC or the IPC. They're going to fall in love with the athletes. Yeah. And, you know, and they're sports that don't get the attention and the, paid space in newspapers and the times unless it's on a podcast like with someone like you who obviously I adore but you know they don't get the exposure 
And so that's why those games are so special and why they are so important because they will inspire generations of kids with able-bodied or with disabilities to get active. And ultimately, if you look at trends around the world, the more that we can do that, the more that we can keep kids active, it's going to be better for their physical health, it's going to be better for their mental health. And then we will have great stories. Like it'll probably hopefully be you in the chair for 2032 and you can hey, be sitting there. You've got some connections, Joe, Yeah, but You, you might know like, some people. Well, promise me that you will bring it back to those moments where they watched those athletes and they were actively inspired by them and, and it encouraged them to be active and to 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 dare to dream because that's that's ultimately why we get sucked into these things. Which, I mean, in all seriousness on that, I mean, it is a dream of mine to, you know, work on an Olympics. I mean, I've, I've had the pleasure of working during the Gold Coast Commonwealth Games in the media, but it's sort of... Which a, was I mean, awesome. Uh, absolutely amazing. I have a question about that in just a second. But, like, I mean, it's 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 interesting when it comes to, yeah, I remember the moments, the the, the sporting moments, but... A lot of what I remember having always wanted to do this as a career is is the commentary behind it. You know, yeah. it's sort of those moments. You were talking before about Cassie. We all remember Bruce's call. Um, and, and one, you know, Basil, God, don't get me started on my love for Basil. One thing that I would love to talk to him about is not only his amazing career, but he called Bradbury. He was the yeah. one who was calling the Bradbury's come through and wins the goal. Like just iconic. We have that in our introduction for our winter. Don't don't sue us. I shouldn't have said that. Um, but it's it's like it's it's moments like that that I remember, like the calling behind yeah. it. Which, so the sports are inspiring the athletes, and and you guys are you know inspiring people like myself who want to be where you are. So can I tell you the best thing which I always say to people because I I know obviously Bruce and I know Basil really well. I know all the commentators really well. So the amount of work that they put in, but I always remember they they tell, you know, lots of them tell stories of the best, it was Dennis Cometti who originally told me this, the best ad-libs of the pre-prepared ones. And, you know, I when I do public speaking, I always talk about Bruce and Kathy's race and they don't realise that Bruce called that race 500 times with Kathy pulling a hammy at the start with Kathy faltering, you know, leading the whole way and faltering with 20 metres to go, like every possible scenario of what could have played out. So then when he's actually calling it live, it's instinctive, but he's just prepared for anything. And, you know, Baz is the same, like even like with that, the Ariane Tipmas, like a, a, apart from the, the the Zach one, which made me laugh so hard, I almost <laughs> went myself in the studio, but, you know, it was all about the time of the coronation. It's the, you know, the, the queen, the new yep. crown to be, like he's, He's thought through those moments, but but you might think through seven of those moments of, of possible scenarios, but you might only get to use one of them or you might not ever get to use them. But the preparation and the planning in the lead up to it is something that I just have so much admiration for those great callers. And, you know, I put that up there. I, I think, I mean, I, th- I found Bruce during Tokyo was probably the most like he was the most nervous to work with in the lead up to it, but he was the most relaxed in commentary. Like hearing him and Colbert and Tamsin, there were so many moments where Das and I were just pissing ourselves laughing in the studio um, where you just heard a side to Bruce that you you know personally, but you don't always hear publicly, but he just felt so comfortable that he was just the Bruce that we know and love and sharing it with the public. And it was yeah, that they are brilliant for a reason. And, you know, the Darren Boyds that are going to be calling, the Brenton Speeds, you know, the, everyone who we're going to hear um, and have heard through the Olympics and the Paralympics, they're there for a reason. It's a pretty special and unique gift. But it it shouldn't be, um, you know, like there'll be some people go, oh, I can't stand it. You just go, mate, just try it. Before you criticise, just try it. Yeah. I, I was going to say Bruce last. We're on the topic right now. One of my favourite Bruce 
stories. It was several years back, there was a, a North Melbourne game here in Hobart and I sort of somehow ended up at a function and, and, and Wayne Carey was there and Wayne Carey was at our table and, you know, we're talking to, you know, people are asking Wayne Carey about, you know, his amazing career, you know, all this sort of stuff. I wanted to talk about Bruce and this was, he'd flown to Hobart like the night after Friday Night Footy, had been working with Bruce and he was just telling the amazing stories about Bruce in the commentary box, how, you know, he's got someone in his ear feeding him a statistic. He's got people handing him sheets of paper and all this sort of stuff. Bruce, just off the head. Bruce, everything, it's all Bruce. Um, just And I like that that lived up to every expectation I have of Bruce. If, if I talk about idols in my life, Joe, yeah. uh, the, the two that stand out for me, and I, was, I had the pleasure of interviewing him before he sadly passed away earlier this year, Murray Walker. Just yeah. idol, absolute yeah. idol, yeah. Uh, absolute just legend in my eyes. And the other is Bruce. I yeah. spent many years of my childhood impersonating Bruce. My There was a one impersonation I think my dad said I could slightly do okay. Don't ask me to do it now. It's been a long time, so it's probably I don't know how that feels. But he's just, <laughs> again, going back to my point about people in, in my position who sort of idolise people in your position, he is just absolutely there. Can, can you just, again, leave me uh, to my expectations yeah. that Bruce is just an utter, utter legend? I can because Bruce has mentored me from day dot. So the, the early days when I was really struggling, Bruce would say to me, Quigsy, Quigsy, the only thing that you see, they're, they're always going to criticise you for how you look or what you do, but what they can't criticise you for is your knowledge. So your key is going to be research. And he has been somebody who I have been able to go to endlessly in my life and who I love so much because He's not only brilliant at what he does, he is, he's one of the kindest, most uh, generous, and, and when I say generous, generous of spirit. So, for example, Abby Jelmy was really nervous hosting her first Olympics. Yeah, you know, Bruce rang up. He always, we kept saying it was his 11th Games. It was his 11th Summer Games. You had all the winters on top of that, and we're going to, you know, numbers like Phil Liggett-esque, yeah, right? Yeah, And Bruce, he, he, he rang Abby and he said, oh, Abby, I'm just a little bit nervous like what do you, can you help an old fella out just give me a couple of tips right which Abby knew he was doing because he's just so bloody gorgeous but having worked with him so closely for so many years Bruce walks into a room it might be two years since he's seen someone he will remember not only every person but a detail about their lives um, a story I always tell is one of our makeup artists who had worked with him for a lot of years on the tennis and then when Bruce stepped more into the commentary and away from hosting in 2000, you know, she hadn't had a lot to do with him for a long time. And uh, during that time, her dad passed away. And, you know, I always had had great experiences, as everyone does with Bruce, because Bruce lifts everyone around him. He wants everyone to shine and everyone to be good. And he wants to, he actually still, just, he's like a kid. He just wants to be part of a team. And, you know, he gets giddy with excitement, but it's so bloody endearing that you just, you feel so protective of Bruce, right? Yeah. And uh, and this instance, this makeup artist had passed away, and uh, he was getting an award um, after his death at, at something he'd done with the trots. And he, he, Bruce probably hadn't spoken to this makeup artist for probably eight years, and he left a message on the phone, and she didn't pick up. She didn't recognise the number, and it was Bruce just saying. Listen, I just want, you know, you hear lots of things about people when they pass and your dad was a, an interesting character and there'll be people that say good things and bad things, but he's getting an award today at the Trots because this is what he did. And he just reeled off the most extraordinary things that her dad had done in his lifetime that she, the family didn't even know. Like they weren't even aware of half of it. They were aware of wow. some of it, but not half of it. And he said, so today when you stand there, you'd be 
so proud of your dad and proud of everything that he did and just know that people like me will be thinking of him yeah we'll be thinking of him on Saturday right to think of in Bruce's world with everything that he's doing and everything that he's remembering and everything that he's meticulously taking his notes on that he still takes the time to ring somebody who he hasn't really had contact with for eight years to leave a message about not only that her dad has passed but several weeks on when he's receiving an award to give her context of like that that sums him up but another thing just as recently as Tokyo we did the rehearsal for the dress the opening ceremony and Bruce is like I just don't feel like I'm ready. I just don't, I don't want, is, is it okay if it, you, if you and Hamish just, you just take over all the bits because originally it was just going to be three of us doing Parade of Nations. You take over the bits and then I'll just chime in with things. But only if I feel like it, but I don't want the pressure of doing it. And it was like, absolutely, Bruce. What, what Bruce wants, but you bend over backwards and you, and you would kill someone if they tried to stop him. And so he sat in, Parade of Nations starts and you say the countries and you start going, and Bruce, not one note, not one like his researcher, Joshua, he works very closely with behind the scenes, but Josh is just sitting back just smiling in all, as we all were, and Bruce just reels off all those stats without a note, without prompting, just remembering every individual, every country, everything they've done, every person they've raced against. Like he's, he's he. I, I called him a national treasure on it. He is a national treasure. There, there is only one mould for him and... You know, anyone that ever tried to step up, they'd have to step up more than just being a great commentator or having a great memory. They'd actually have to, they'd have to be as generous as Bruce is as a human being. And in my experience in all those years, he's pretty rare to go to that level. There's lots of good people, but he's 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 in a stratosphere. He is unbelievable. Hundred percent agree. Wow, you got me a bit emotional telling that story about uh, the the phone call. Oh, there. That was... it makes me cry every time. He's he, wow. that's, that's I have a million Bruce stories like that. He's just a, he's such a legend. I have to say, I mean, I, I I will never have this opportunity again, Joe. But please pass on my details, and we would love to get him on the show. I don't know if he does podcasts. He probably doesn't. But I mean, seriously, he does. Just... He's in quarantine in Gore at the moment. I'd give him a bit of time because he was he was absolutely knackered at the end of the Olympics, as you can expect. And. Um, but he he did actually love it more than he expected this time around. So I will I will definitely I'll speak to Annie, his wife, because she organises all that, and I'll let him know. Please do. It's an open invitation. He can talk to me at three in the morning. I will gladly do uh, anything with that. And just quickly before I get to the final questions, yeah. talk about admiration. One one part of your career that like I absolutely admired the heck out of was 2018 Commonwealth Games, the closing ceremony, kind of yeah. you sort of speaking out against it. I was at that closing ceremony, so I kind of understood it. But I mean, I don't really want to dwell. On sort of the, the negative aspect of that, but I mean, kind of, was that uh, when you were on air doing that? Like, how did you feel at that moment? Obviously, you were quite sort of angry, but like, sort of the backlash and everything that came with that. I mean, that must have been an interesting moment of your broadcasting career. It was, and I'm glad it came at a point in my career where I've got pretty thick skin. But um, I still, I still know it was the right thing to do, and I knew it was the right thing to do because as soon as I had done it. I heard from the athletes who were obviously gagged by their um, contracts and I heard from every performer who was performing and all of them were just like, thank God somebody said something. And 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 in all the interviews and news since, um, the amount of people who have come up and said, mate, we were there. It was one of those things where, yeah, we'd been to the the briefing that you do for 10 minutes and, and they'd explain athletes were going to be in the centre of the thing. That's not unusual. That's happened before. Um, that bit was not the surprising bit. The surprising bit was that um, 
even though they had time to work out the staging, where the athletes would be, where the track was going to be around the back for the, the closing ceremony, that that the artistic director or whoever it was had decided that it wasn't going to be about the athletes, it was going to be about the show. And even though we kind of knew that that's about kind of planning on the way in as far as it was going to be a stage show more than anything, they had originally planned to show all the athletes, but when they actually were in the moment, they decided the camera angles were too far away. So they made a decision to turn the lights off over the athletes so you, you wouldn't see the athletes. And a lot of the lights kind of went off around the top of the stadium as well. And so we were kind of watching it. We watched when they came in and, you know, I always remember Kurt Fernley carrying the flag and waving it madly and somebody just coming up to him and just grabbing the flag out of his hand and going, okay, take your, take your positions. <laughs> and I remember looking at his face even when he did that, even though it was from a long way away, just going, what is going on? Um, you know, they weren't given that moment of celebration. And then as it progressed, yeah, there were lots of things. There was a bit of a mist of rain. So, you know, there were people slipping over on the stages and, you know, the artists just that themselves would just say it was just a debacle from their point of view. Um, they knew it was a debacle. And the athletes were just like, well, <laughs> why are we here? There's no point in us yeah. being here. And they started to leave. Yeah. And I started keying on saying, mate, if we got a camera near the exit, the athletes are leaving. And they're going, no, 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 no. I'm like, no, the athletes are leaving. Like, we're watching the athletes leaving. This is a joke. Like, this is this is so embarrassing. Like, when are they going to show shots of the athletes? And so it was like this dialogue that kept going. And um, and then eventually it became very obvious that the athletes were leaving. But so was the stadium. The stadium was oh, empty. Oh, yeah, it was empty. Yeah, I it remember was, it vividly. Mate, yeah. It was emptying. And, and it, was, it, it was one of these weird things where I just said to them, Hey guys, I just keyed. I said, if you think I'm going to get up at the end and say how fabulous this is, I'm just not. And they came back and they said, well, actually, I think you're going to have to because we're obviously the Australian broadcasters. And I'm like, yeah, well, I'm just giving you fair warning. I'm, I'm not going to do that. I'm, I'm going to call it as it is. I'm going to say it's a disgrace. We should be celebrating. They've just put on 11 of the best days of sport. Like it, it was actually so awesome, those Commonwealth Games. It's just it's just so disappointing that this is how they're going to end it. Like even you think about those games and how they combine para sports and able-bodied sports and like it broke such ground on so many levels and ran like clockwork and had so many great stories that came out of it. And then you got to the end of it and as opposed to being a big exclamation mark with a celebration, it was just, it was embarrassing. And so they were like, oh, God, are you serious? I said, no, I'm, I'm deadly serious. And, and they went, just give us a moment. And then, you know, we just kept going, um, Basil and I, and then eventually they came back and they said, actually, we've, we've cleared it to the top. We're going to position you to camera position, go your hardest. Like, we also agree it's shit. And it was like, so why did we have to have a conversation about saying that? Like, I found that weird. But, um, you know, so I obviously offloaded and Basil was being his beautiful um, neutral self. And I was just like, no, it was terrible. We say it's terrible. And then I'm, I'm angry for the athletes and, Anyhow, the, the stuff that ensued after that was just bizarre because you knew you're, like, you're going to do something like that, tee off like that, of course you're going to get criticism. And it wasn't a criticism of the young kids who were singing their hearts out or, you know, even the performers, I know they were trying their best. It was the decision to, to exclude the athletes from the closing ceremony that I had the issue with. But, of course, you, you know, that moment gets dissected a million different ways and, um, and then, you know, ironically, it was females in the media who had to crack the hardest at you and, and they weren't even in the briefings or the things. So it was just it was just surreal. But I'm lucky I've been around long enough. I just turned my phone off, sent a couple of, you know, smileys, thanks back to people. And honestly, it didn't affect my life. I rang my husband the morning after 
And he's just hilarious because he never watches literally anything that I do. And I think that's so healthy. It's probably why we are madly in love 16 years after we got married. But I rang him and he said, hey, Dal, um, anything you need to tell me about last night? And I said, yeah. Um, I kind of teed off about the closing ceremony. And just so you know, it's possibly going to be my last day at work. And he goes, how do you feel about it? He says, did you sleep? And I said, you know what, Toddy? I did. I slept like a log. I know I did the right thing. And he said, well, that's that's all that counts. He said, we'll get through any of it. And it was just hilarious because on the night, they obviously had gone all the way to the top because we went to the the um, post yeah, you know, closing ceremony get together. And it was all the seven people. It was all the people who put on the closing ceremony. So you can imagine it was a pretty awkward room to walk in on. And our head of sports source time did a speech and he said it was actually the thing he was most proud of. And so you had all the seven people, you know, cheering and then you had all the people who put it on just going, yeah, you bloody upset. How dare you? Like, that's our life. (laughs) And, you know, you're so conscious of of everyone's feelings in that moment and you're kind of going, oh, yeah, but you're thinking about how that might feel for you. Sorry about that. Um, But Kerry Stokes sort of came up and he's like, I'm so proud that you felt that you would just say that. He goes, like, I know that's you and I've known you a long time and you did, but I'm so proud that you would do it publicly. And then I started getting so many nice things said to me by the bosses that I actually thought 100% I was going to get sacked because they were so nice to me. <laughs> it kind of felt like, you know, the old, I've got the support of the board. Yeah. Um, publicly, yep. we're going to say. You're going to get training when you come to Channel yeah. 7, you yeah. know. She yeah. has the support of the board, which means, <laughs> by the way, you also don't have a job going forward. So I, was, I had already kind of come to peace that if that ultimately was it, that at least because I had so much support from the athletes and the artists, I was like, yeah, okay, I'm still going to be able to sleep. I'm going to be okay. But, but in actual fact, it, it did translate to support from the network as well. So it was one of it was just one of those weird things. I had to go on a voiceover booth the next day for like three days straight for house rules, and I've never been happier to be able to just block out the world. And, um, you know, and it's not a bad thing to say to young people starting out when there is a scandal, you know what, it too shall pass. It does pass. And there will be some people who occasionally come up and they go, how dare you? And you just say to them, well, hang on, let me give you the context of that. And they go, oh, actually, I agree. Uh, so it's the same as anything. It's like people are going to make up their minds. You, you do an opening ceremony. Like I think after the Tokyo thing, I'm, I'm the biggest racist in Australia. I'm this. I said stupid things. You know what? As Bruce said when we walked out, do six hours of talking nonstop. Pick out the moments. And I guarantee you, you can all find something that you're going to pick on and go, I, I sleep very comfortably because I know who I am and I know what I stand for and I know what values I that I choose to live my life by. And, and it's not any of the, the things that people are going to criticise you for. So um, it takes a long time to get that kind of armour that you need to survive in the industry. Um, and that's why I just figure my role in the next you know, 10, 15 years is to try and just help as many people who are coming through the ranks understand all of that and what it takes and how important it is to have a life away from it. Because I think that's been my biggest success story in life is I've always had a great life away from TV. So I love what I do. I only work on things I love. I only work with people who I love working with now because I've reached that point in my career. Um, but I I also have a great balance away from it. So when it goes pear-shaped and horribly wrong, it's not it's not the end of the world. Well, I'm going to test those waters right now with these final questions okay. because there there could okay. be some answers in here that Controversial. might, you know, who knows what we're going to find out today, Ooh. basically. Um, the, the, 
The pretext with these, as I always explain to our guests, is as a co-Canadian Australian production, we uh, obviously feature a lot of Canadian content. And, and back during Rio and Pyeongchang on the Team Canada website, they had a questionnaire that they would put towards several of their athletes, kind of a get-to-know-you sort of session. <laughs> and it's, it's always a bit of fun. And as always, I say sort of a, a side text, there is homework if you want to take it. There are some drawing elements of this. If you want to do it, you can if not, it's fine. We've had one athlete come through with that homework, Joe. So uh, you, know, oh, it's gold. you can you can add to it if you if you really. I'm want intrigued. To I'm definitely hooked in. Like this would be something on, t- on, on commercial TV. We'd be like, we'll be back with that questionnaire after this. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Don't worry. We're the podcast, which a lot of people say that. Oh yeah, we'll listen to that after this. We'll get to it eventually. Um, first question for you: the greatest Olympian of all time is. All time. I, I would say for me, Kathy Freeman, because it's in my time and I felt like she she healed a nation, she carried a nation. The pressure that she was under was beyond extraordinary. So, Kathy. The first, now this is the one I talked to you off air about, yeah. uh, which, I mean, you said, I said I felt old asking this to one of our guests. I don't know, you know, how like the first Olympics you ever remember watching were 84 at school we had a teacher who was just mad about the olympics and the tv screen was moved into our um our, our classrooms and we got to watch the 84 olympics and i i often say and i say with josh k who's bruce's researcher it's we should make it part of the curriculum particularly in lockdown times we should have had part of the curriculum where, where we even offer up you know, stories and stuff for schools that the kids get interested in sport and they learn how to to love the athletes and, and become excited about them. But I'd love to see the Olympics and Paralympics for those two weeks part of a curriculum for lots of different things that you could focus on. Um, but for me, it was LA. Good, good answer. I mean, I, I would say I wasn't. You can't remember LA because you're so bloody young. You're right I, I, was, I was minus three, but um, <laughs> we'll, we'll sort of add that there. Um, now, this is the homework element. If you want to draw a picture of yourself, Joe, you're welcome to. Uh, feel free to send it in. We'll publish on our social media. Um, what is your favourite ice cream flavour? Uh, anything with chocolate, chocolate chunks, Homer Hudson, chocolate rock, um, anything that's Ben and Jerry's. Uh, any, anything that is ridiculously decadent that I can add Milo and chocolate sauce to. Oh, yes, Milo. That's a Milo good one. is underrated, man. Milo rocks. I make my yeah. husband a Milo with a teaspoon of honey from our bees every single morning. Wow. i tell you what, the one thing I miss most living overseas, well, two things. I miss Dim Sims and yeah. Milo. Yeah, they're, they're, they're the not you know together. You, can get, you but, know you can get Milo just like you could literally walk out your place, go to a store, get Milo. Like it's not hard to get. I know now it's it's I'm back. It's kind of yeah. I should sort of stockpile it basically. So um, yeah, and as, as one of the weirdest things I ever experienced in in traveling was when I was in Malaysia. They're obsessed with Milo. You can get Milo at McDonald's. In I remember when the Milo ice creams were big and the Milo bars were big, and yep. I, I I I mean I love. <laughs> I, I'm not your average eight, size eight on television. I love all food and I love, um, I, I kind of sometimes say to people, I wish I was allergic to something. I had an intolerance <laughs> to something because I, I probably would not be um, six foot tall and, you know, size 14. Um, I would be tiny like you're meant to be on television, but I love all food and I love sweets and I love savoury equally. So I, I'm a bad person to ask about this stuff. All those days of being free of everything, you know, gluten. Oh, thank know, God. Dairy, but that's why I'm allowed to. Now, so I, I still I still have to take some of them out of my diet even all these years on when I'm not 
as as healthy as I should be, but I know what to take out first. <laughs> if you were a baseball player, what would your walk-up music be? And I find this interesting because, I mean, you didn't sort of have these grand entrances that the swimmers get these days. No, so. no. Oh, God, mine would probably be the ABC News music that they play because that's what I grew up on and that's what I still love. And I... I'm so bad with um, pop culture or it would, yeah, maybe something that, I don't know, that's preempting a death, the final countdown, something like that. Like I just, I would, <laughs> I would be so uncomfortable. I'd be heading out to humiliate myself. So something dramatic that suggested the end was near. Well, I think like take the ABC theme and use the pendulum version when they remixed it, you know, like, it. kind of do that. Love it. I'm, that all there there for the, I'm all there for a remix. It's, it makes me sound way cooler than I am. Or the home and away theme. Just to kind of really, yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah, no, probably not that. Oh, life keeps getting better all the time. Better homes hey, and gardens. Yeah, well, exactly. How sick are you are of that theme? I don't want you to badmouth better homes and gardens, but is it? I would never badmouth better homes and gardens. Better homes and gardens is ninety minutes of positivity every week that we all need. Brilliant. Let me what tell a show. You that. What a <laughs> show. House rules. How great no, is house no, rules? No, not not the same thing. But, but better homes. <laughs> tell you. <laughs> we want to keep your job by the end of this interview. Um, in a movie about your life, who would you be played by? Who is the most probably Mr. Bean? Someone who's really uncorrect. <laughs> I, I would watch that. I would weirdly watch that. I would like to see how he would look with the blonde wig. Kind that of or it. someone from the office, because I'm just a little bit awkward and uncorrect. So would, you know, Steve Carell in the American version would also do nicely. Now the second homework here, draw a picture of a Canadian animal. It's not an Australian animal, it's a Canadian animal. So this person's drawn a moose. So standard. <laughs> a moose. Canadian animal, really. Uh, yeah, um, I'm trying to think what they have on their um, their Olympic uniforms that they regularly have. Mm, I'm, I'm, is an otter Canadian? Am yeah, I, we'll go. There's otters in Canada. So that I don't know if they it's have to be. There's yeah. bears. There's otters. Yeah. Canadian yeah. geese, they'll yeah. attack you. So, um, well, here's another interesting one. You've talked about your snacks. What's your guilty pleasure snacks? Clearly none of them. You, you own all of them. <laughs> yeah, I have all of them. I don't deny myself anything. I had too many years of doing that. Wow, guilty pleasure. My husband doesn't eat chocolate. I love chocolate. Um, what is my guilty pleasure? Look, it's um, I'm such I'm such a dork. My guilty pleasure is probably something that would be so far in the realm of better homes, so far away from what you're expecting. It would be spending two hours by myself in my veggie cat patch. I grow 85% of all our veggies and I love that time or playing with my bees. It would be something, it's not like a guilty pleasure of what I would eat. It would be a guilty pleasure of the time that I would take to enjoy the things I love. I take it. No, I, I like that answer. Um, growing up, who was your favourite sports team? Manly Seagulls, which everyone always goes, oh, it must have been your dad who got you into rugby league. But our mum was was and still is obsessed with rugby league. But we um, we basically ha- were, were brought up to get a wheelbarrow out the front of the car and get maroon and white flowers and shower all the cars every time that we had a home game on a Saturday or a Sunday. And then mum would walk us down and mum would walk us to Brookie Oval and we would sit on the hill and we'd all watch Manly. So we were absolutely uh, in Georgia. And they're like the Collingwood of the NRL. Like everyone loves to hate Manly. Um, and a couple of years ago we bought mum tickets in the grandstand thinking, you know, she goes to every game. She would just love the comfort. And I had a friend who was at the game and I said to her, hey, oh, my mum's up there. Have a look at, you know, this seat number. And she's like, no, can't see her. I'm like, no, no, she's definitely there. I've just, I've got a text from her like 40 minutes ago. She's definitely there. Like, just look out for her. She's like, got a text. She's not here. 
So I rang mum. I'm like, hey, where are you? She goes, I'm sitting in my seat. I love my seat. It's so great. You have such a great view of everything. It's amazing. And I'm like, mum, I know you're not in your seat. She's like, oh, I'm on the hill. I hate the seat. I hate the seat. I can't hear anyone yell out. Like I love just sitting here giggling at the banter. I love hearing the nuffies go. She goes, I'm, I I haven't sat in my seats all year. Wow. <laughs> Your were like, okay, well, we won't buy those seats next year. Yeah. Like because she lives for it. You get 800 million texts every single game they play. So as a result, like I would say that was the team I watched the most growing up. Which is it a case of if you accidentally don't go for them one time, you get kicked out of home? I was done that as a kid as oh, a Colton yeah. supporter. If I dare cheat against them at one moment, I was out of the house no matter what. Out of the house. I actually won't hear about We're like, but Jez Hasler, he's a current coach. He was a coach for a long time. He went to Canterbury Bulldogs for a number of years. My mum went from loving him to hating him. She was so vehemently against him. And then when he came back, like we always laugh, it's like, say, Desi, you can do no wrong. What an amazing, <laughs> like she, she's hilarious. She lives. And as I say, everyone always goes, it must be your dad. But it's like, no, our mum was the one who was just nuts about sport, who instilled it in all of us. Well, that's my grandma. Like that's how my, because <laughs> she was the same at Eddie Betts. Like when he played for Adelaide. Oh, couldn't couldn't say anything good about Eddie Betts when he went to Adelaide, but yeah. when he came back, oh, Eddie, oh, what a he's man. a great young, what a wonderful what, young man. No, exactly. We like, funny, like, Nan was the same with AFL. Mum's um, it with rugby league, and yet I have two sisters who, you know, I remember the blood is low when we had we um, were kicking for you know to win the game after the siren, and sitting in a hotel room with my two sisters and my middle sister Sarah and I were just sitting there glued. Our, our brother was too young to come away, and my older sister just looked up and she said, "Oh, I get it." And we were like, what do you get? She said, I get that the room is made to look bigger because of the pattern they've got on the backs of the curtains and the way the pattern ties into Sarah and I are like, are you, are you not watching what's about to happen here? And she's like, yeah, I don't really get sport. So like, <laughs> we definitely have both ends of the spectrum in the family. For sure. Um, the most recent TV show that you binge watched? Oh, my God, misrepresented on ABC. Nice. I'll give you, actually, I could give you, when I say that, I've I've watched that at like half an hour at the night when I'm trying to wind down. Um, But the shows that I love, Yellowstone, Succession, Mm -hmm. Morning Wars, um, Mayor of Easttown, like all the recent ones that are just phenomenal that just have tickled me on so many different levels. Favourites to go back to The Office, uh, um, Schitt's Creek, Superstore, hilarious. Ted Lasso. Um, I mean, there's just so many. I could I could talk television 24 hours a day of the stuff that I love to binge watch. But and then and then a million docos. Oh my god, we start sports docos. Um, I could list that for the next half hour. Uh, I, I love watching TV to wind down because that's something my husband loves to do. He he goes to bed pretty early, so we we have our viewing where we watch together, and then I just binge watch myself just until I fall asleep. And just for the sake of the Channel 7 executives, we'll do a take where you mention, oh, I love watching Home and Away, I love watching RFDS, The Voice, I, uh, SAS. I watch <laughs> Homes and Gardens every week because I get asked about, like I watch that religiously every week, I get asked about it every week and I have to be across everyone's stories. And also I do love the fact it's a show that's just positive. I haven't seen RDFS because of the Olympics um, and my mum hilariously sent me a text, this is fed income the other day on the family chat. We have a family chat that, you know, couple of hours can go past and you get 60 messages from them. And mum was like, hey, everyone, you need to watch this show. It's called The Voice. It's on Channel 7 and it's amazing. And everyone just like piled onto her because it's like, uh, you know, it's been around for a while. She's like, no, 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 I just saw it. It's new to Channel 7. You have to watch. And then she just caught 
a barrage of messages for the rest of the night and it just made me laugh. I just thought, wow, that's that's how commercial television keeps going. Well, I, I was literally going to say to you, can you just pass on the message to Channel 7 and say we get it, the voice is on. Uh, that's all I was going to say. Um, hey, at least we lost after the Olympics this time around. We realised hey, that, you know, there is a whole world after and you don't have to jam it down people's throats. So, yeah, you know, we're making The, the words after the tennis and after the Olympics. No, people were the big thing those. and they worked for a number of years and then everyone else started doing it. It was like, guys, we need to, we need to progress, like, Television, like everything else, you need to keep evolving. Move through it. Um, Your biggest fear in life is? Apart from anything happening to the people that I love the most, so that that would override absolutely everything, it would be uh, heights. I am genuinely, genuinely terrified of heights. I bet you're glad Who Dares Wins isn't a thing anymore because if they try and get you on that. I was asked (laughs) to host that. (laughs) Wow. Um, no, but any of those shows, like, but I, I would be their dream because I would be hopeless, and well, it's also why I would never do any of those shows. Reboot it. We 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 interviewed over on our sister Aren't show. Are they doing that anyhow with Holy Moly and all that? Isn't well, it like wine one of those. But and... we we interviewed David Mason, the EP. Yeah, that was, we, yep. we talked to him about Australian when you got when Channel Seven had Celebrity Survivor, and and he that was his baby. He he yeah. absolutely loved it. So I'm sure if if Channel Seven wanted it, David Mason yeah. would probably get behind that. So yeah, that's uh, fine. I'm not sure that I would want it, or no. I would be involved with it. Like I managed to. Just <laughs> You know, to every single one of them. I remember dancing with the stars. They asked me about the eighth year straight, and I was like, "So, just a question. Like, I host the safest show that you have on the network. Why on earth would you have me go out do something that I'm going to be terribly uncover, <laughs> probably fall over, swear my head off, abuse everyone around me within sight because I feel so humiliated, and then leave? Like, what? How would that work for you, the network, or me?" And they're like. Yeah, okay, maybe not this year. Well, so we're week. not seeing you on any reality show anytime. You're just the host. You're not a contestant. <laughs> yeah, hosting, at least you can still care about the people in a weird part of reality, but you actually can, and I did, and I still love and see so many of the contestants on House Rules. But for me to do, and we've had the discussion with the network, for me to do another reality show, they would have to shift it significantly to be more positive. And I, and I think there's a place for that. Like I actually do think people would watch that. Um, it's just trying to get them to break the mold before everyone else does. You're not copying, but you have to you know, be the first to try something different and, and give it a crack. You know the show then that they should bring back because it was a very positive show and a very underrated show in television history, Thorpey's Angels. Whatever happened to Thorpey's <laughs> Angels? You could be one of Thorpey's Angels, right, going out there doing good deeds for the community. I'm sure Thorpey oh, would love Thorpey, it. We do that all the time on Better Homes and Gardens. But having said that, Thorpey was so fantastic on the Olympics coverage. Oh, amazing. He just I don't think I've heard an expert commentator really I open my eyes up yeah. to a sport as much. and. The thing that I was fascinating, like we sort of said at the beginning, like, does Ian want to be there? He kind of sounds a bit bored. But by the end of it, he was like, holy crap, I just want to hear every single word he's telling us because it was just so insightful. Look, I think I think that's that thing too where we've got to be very careful how we judge people if they're not the way that your expectations are because yeah. he's gone through a lot and, he, and yeah. he's on a very um, very personal journey to learn to like himself. So he was very nervous about that, but he knew he had something that he wanted Australia to see. And there were moments where he was doing the math of breaking down in relays and moments and picking up things that other people who've done it, you know, 10 times over weren't picking up. Um, So I think I I was a little bit annoyed at some of the, and I guess it's because of what I work with in mental health, I was a bit annoyed with some of the language around he doesn't sound interested. Well, there's probably lots of reasons why he might not sound as interested as people are expecting. But if you actually go past that and you listen to what he's saying, he was bloody brilliant. Which the one thing that 
I absolutely loved is when him and Lisa would just have conversations yeah. and, and Basil would just let them talk because yeah. that's, again, the insight. And that's what, you know, is great about having expert comment, commentators on on any broadcast is learning that insight. And that's obviously why they're there to kind of give yeah. it a take. And, yeah, it's, it's fascinating. Like Ian Thorpe is just such a household name in this country that it, it's fascinating to hear someone like that give such an insight into yeah. the sport that we think we all know, but it's, Absolutely. it's so yeah, more technical totally you can and imagine. I think Maddie, Maddie Shervington did a little bit with the athletics as well. Sometimes yeah. I saw in the Absolutely. afternoon shift. Um, have you had Basil on? No. Uh, look, if you hook me up with Basil, I'll, I'll be equally happy. I'll be making some calls for you. I'll, I actually I'll, I'll tell you what, one thing. I think it was actually during Rio when we first started, I tweeted Basil and he was like, yeah, absolutely love to come on the show. But he's, I mean, he's been a bit busy since then. He's kind of got a city to run. <laughs> but I like the thing, the, my weird obsession with commentators over my life is that like Bruce Murray were my, you know, that. but I've always said that Basil is Bruce Jr., like if you had a successor to Bruce, it's Basil because he's just got so many things about him that is so similar to Bruce. So, yeah, if you hook me up with Bruce and Basil, Joe, uh, I'm telling you now. Um, <laughs> I'll tell you something funny, and it's funny because you brought up the Stephen Bradbury. So often um, what goes on behind the scenes at an Olympics or a Winter Olympics or a Paralympics is there's like this um, unspoken of, well, it's not unspoken as we speak about it a lot, but the tally of the commentators who get to call these magic moments that, you know, are going to be part of folklore. Um, so for Baz, he has called actually so many of those bursts at each game. So he's, you know, he's just hilariously almost unbearable because he just will remind you of it a thousand times. And <laughs> he was asked, I think it was in Rio, he was asked if he wanted to do Chloe Esposito's thing. Oh. And he, he was racing out the door and he said no. And so... They kind of just came out now because you know that just the way it eventuates in a way that that sport works and you how the scoring and the judging and everything happens with it and it all all of a sudden goes from not understanding any of the numbers to oh my god she's in contention to to, to the laser medal. race or whatever it's called at the end right like yeah. that's amazing like, yeah it was even before that it's like she's in contention to win a medal and then by the laser it was a gold medal yeah and so they were madly scrambling because we only had international commentators so they just come out into the main room and a couple of us who knew what was going on have just working hightail out of there we're like <laughs> No way. I do not understand this sport enough to work out. And I'm not good at math, so I'm not going to do it. And so all these people, and Scott um, McGrory was sitting there and they just came up and they're like, hey, Scott, do you mind, do you mind doing this favour? I just need a little bit of help in the room. Still need to do some checks with it. It's like, okay. And he's like, yeah, I'll go in. And they're like, oh, do you mind just calling a little bit of this event? And he's like, yeah. And then all of a sudden he sat down and he's realised what's happening and that she's in metal contention. And, and he's like, but, I, but I've got, and they're just like, don't worry, we're going to get someone. And they've like pulled a researcher in who's just like madly scrambling, scrambling notes and then he's just got into it. And, right? So he then goes on to call that amazing gold medal and he did such a brilliant, brilliant job. And, and that was, he, actually, that's someone else who was brilliant in the courage. Like Scott is always amazing. But to hear Anna Mears, I felt like we saw and heard such 100%. a different side to oh, Anna Mears as what we've heard of her as a con- competitor and as yeah. an athlete. To hear her that there's 15 minutes, I think, on the last day of the cycle where Tokyo was just really behind the schedule. And she just opened up about how she'd never thought about cycling and what she did and how it impacted the coaches and the other team members and the people. And it was just like we were we were literally about to go out and move around and, just, and then we were all just like, stop, just listen to this. This is unheard of. Like, so you had that, like those magic moments. But, yeah, so 
Luke and I, just so you know, we did win Tokyo because we had more gold medals than everyone else because our shift, yeah, we, we used to come. Perfect. But, you know, we, most of those can also be attributed to Basil and Thorpe and Lisa. Well, congratulations, I'll say that. Thank and, you, thank you. We and, and just also, class. to correct you, Joe, can I just quickly, I want to pull you up on something. Yeah. It's Queen Chloe. Just, just to, you know, just to point that out. She deserves that. She deserves that. That was, that was an, an amazing, amazing, you know, amazing story. The most fascinating thing about that was that back during Rio, when that was our, our first games that we covered here on Off the Podium, and day one we were talking about favourite sports and, you know, favourite, you know, quirky things that we like about the Olympics. I straight away was modern pentathlon. Like, I love this sport. It is like it the is most really incredible cool. sport. And I just remember talking it up and like, hey, we're only three days away from it, two days away from it, one day away from it. And because that what happened in the middle of the night and I'd sort of been staying up really late, I remember waking up and I think like I'm zoning onto my TV, like, oh, modern pentathlon's on. And I'm like seeing this footage of like Australia got, I'm like, oh, this is, I'm dreaming. Like this is, I've been talking about it for the last week and a half. Then all of a sudden I realised that we had won a gold medal. Yeah. And I just, lo- and like the whole episode was just a tribute to Chloe. And I, I'm, this is the first time I'm saying it on the show right now, but to our listeners, Chloe's on the show in a couple of weeks. Oh, so wow. You well, you know, about- we'll get her whole backstory because even what she did, like one, what her dad has done for the sport, but also yeah. what she did to go away and kind of do it all by herself where there was such a question mark over there. Like she's, she's phenomenal and she's such yeah. a beautiful human being. Again, it comes back to me about the person and her story and how generous she is and how generous she is with the current crop of athletes. And I think we all had that moment when Tokyo was today. We're like, oh, maybe she'll be back for it. Um, where she's like, hello, I've got a life and, you know, a baby and all the rest of it. But for us, we're just like, just do it again, just for us. Yeah. Do it, yeah. I I did a blog post kind of doing my favourite sporting moments of the decade and I included her win in Rio and the other the other athlete who I love to death, um, Esther Ledecka winning sort of the gold in the snowboarding and the skiing in Pyeongchang. I mean, just insane feat for that. So, um, yeah, I'm a fanboy deep down at heart, Joe. I try well, to be professional. Hey, so am but- I. But that's the thing. Like, that's why we – that's why – and so are the people who listen to your podcast and so are the people who, who even if they have their gripes about what Seven are doing, who watch – every moment and get sucked into it because we love, as I said, it comes back to the stories. It comes back yeah. to the people. It comes back to that little bit of joy that they give you. And it's why the Tokyo Olympics were so extra special this time around. You know, normally in a lead up to an Olympics, you can almost map to the day. Drug scandals, transport scandals, um, venue scandals. Like you can almost, it doesn't matter if it's com games or an Olympic games, you can almost map out. They worked out at 60 days ago, 50 days ago, 40 days ago. What's going to be the story? How can we be negative? Because COVID took all that away and none of us really believed it was going to happen until it happened. When it did happen, you had such rawness from the athletes because it did take such a mental and physical toll on them all and and in lots of different ways. So sometimes it was the athletes who were just frustrated sometimes the athletes who realize it was a golden time that's gone sometimes the older athletes going how the hell am I going to keep my body physically at this level for another 12 months so you had all these different angles and stories that came from the delay alone then you had them like the rest of us amazed that it could actually progress and progress safely as had been promised and then without crowds and without family and without friends and all the usual you know distractions that they would have at a game where everyone's off partying and doing the rest of it you actually had athletes whose only connection to their family was through that interview at the end of a pool or a track or off a court. And it's why it's why it resonated so much for all of us, whether you're working, watching, just loving every second of it or hating it. You loved it because of how real it was. Yeah. 
For sure. Uh, memorable experience. And some of, so many of the athletes we've had on from Tokyo just talking about how, yeah, they're part of such a unique games in history. And obviously for you to be sort of part of that broadcast team too, it's something you will, yeah, definitely remember for the rest of your life. Last question. What is one thing you can't live without? My family. Your family. <laughs> I'm testing at the moment. I'm nine, nine weeks in. I've got two and a half weeks to go before I hopefully will be allowed to go home and see them. And, and I know there's loads of people who have way longer separations than that. Um, I usually travel a lot. I'm away a lot. I accept that it's part of my life. But um, one thing that 2020 gave me was a lot more time at home. And I've got a little grandson now. I'm one of those strange people that loves my husband to death. I love my kids. Um, one of them's in far north Queensland. One of them lives and works in our company and lives with us. And I am craving the normality of the daggy stuff that I get to do with them because I'm very grateful they let me just go away and live my dream and do all this. And I bore them endlessly, like I will bore your listeners with stories of sport and athletes and all the rest. But, um, you know, I, they are the things that feed my soul. Well, I don't know what you're talking about, boring. Because I mean, we're, we're seriously. You're this up to is like our longest... fifth hour of this podcast. Well, I mean, I was about to say you, you hold another distinction now. You're officially our longest uh, interview, but I mean, it's flown by in my eyes. Uh, so it's been yeah. it's great to kind of learn everything here and get all those stories. And I, you know, people know who you are. People know everything about that. But if if anything you want to plug right now, Joe, like social media, anything out there, your, your organisations you work for, kind of take this opportunity now to plug whatever you like. You might not get to do this on seven, so you can do whatever you want now. <laughs> oh, I do it all the time. I'm, I'm one of those moldy moles <laughs> that gets my point across. Um, what would I plug? I would plug the Paralympics. I think if, if you think how amazing the stories were in the Olympics, get to know the backstories of the athletes in the Paralympics. It will change everything of preconceived ideas that you have on so many levels. So the Paralympics would be one. They start the 24th of August. I'm not sure when you publish this, but 24th of August to the uh, 5th of September. If it's after that, people can watch the highlights. They can watch the highlights. It'll be on 7 plus for eternity. Exactly. Um, actually, I don't know about how that works with contracts, but it'll be somewhere. You'll be able to find it. <laughs> the um, so so I would do Paralympics. I would, I would plug Beyond Blue because obviously I'm really passionate about mental health and um, there's a lot of people who are really struggling at the moment and I would, I would just reiterate that message that the first step you take is the hardest, but you can actually take steps to recovery and that there's a lot of people, doesn't matter what your background, what your circumstances are, mental health doesn't discriminate, but there is there is light at the end of that tunnel, which might not feel like that at that um, initial stage. Uh, and I would obviously plug Better Homes and Gardens, 90 minutes of joy and happiness. And, and when is that air, Joe? When can people watch that? Uh, and Friday nights from 7 p.m. on 7 and 7.2, depending on where you are in the country. And uh, it is it is just a joy to work on. It's why I, the show has been going for 28 years. I'm hosting it for the 18th year and I... We just have the best people on camera. We're the best people off camera. We just don't have anyone who works on that show who doesn't believe in in what we think are the values of what it, it, it puts out into the world. So, and um, and all the other things that I will eventually do. Watch this space, but uh, seriously, it has just been a joy talking to you, Ben. It's been so much fun. Well, I've had an absolute blast, Joe. I came into this uh, hoping to get one thing out and I got a million and one other things out of it. So I think it's been an absolutely fantastic hey, time. Let's face it, you're just going, I hopefully have got Bruce. And That's all I've used you for. I've literally <laughs> gone, I'm like, do we nah, I'm happy agree. to use Screw because her. I think they're both such awesome people. I think you would love it. It's like Bruce and Basil, how do I get it? Get them on the show. Yeah, Joe Griggs, might. she's a nice lady. She <laughs> might do that. Uh, Joe, pleasure. I have pleasure. never Thank been you. happier to be used, Ben. Never <laughs> been happier. Thank you so much for joining us on the show today. We definitely appreciate your time. You are so welcome and I have loved every second of it too. 
And a big thanks to Joe there. Absolutely incredible chat there. I told you it was worth every single second of it. Amazing interview and insightful interview. And maybe we're going to rethink how we talk about Channel 7 moving forward. So uh, maybe maybe we'll have to rethink some segments come Beijing in a few months' time. But uh, an amazing, amazing chat. And if you're in Australia, watch Better Homes and Gardens as well because everyone loves Joe and you've got to, got to keep her on your TV screens every single week, of course, too. Uh, as you heard me say, though, in that interview with Joe, I we hadn't announced it any social media, we hadn't announced it any other episode, but uh, just saying, that is true what I said, the one, the only, Queen Chloe Esposito will be on this show very soon. So stay tuned for that. You know, we're excited about that, and we know you're going to be excited that finally we've got her. We've finally gotten Chloe, and she's coming on this very show to talk to us. So uh, stay tuned for that. If this is our longest interview today with Joanna Griggs, I mean, imagine how long our Chloe Esposito episode is going to go for. But uh, we'll uh, see how that goes very, very soon. Stay tuned for that. And also stay tuned to our social media. Remember to hit us up on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Simply search for Off The Podium. You can leave us some feedback, messages, anything you like. If there's any other Olympians or behind-the-scenes Olympians, broadcasters, anybody out there that you can think of that you'd like to hear from, shoot us a message, send us a request, and we'll see what we can do in the meantime as well. And of course, subscribe to the podcast. All good podcast channels out there you can search off the podium mash that subscribe button leave us some feedback we love to hear what you think about the show give us a rating and uh, we very much would appreciate that along the way as well we appreciate you listening today we appreciate joanna griggs's time what an interview what a time i'm gonna go have a lay down and recover from uh, one of the best interviews we've had on this show but stay tuned we'll have more to come my name is ben this is off the podium and we'll speak to you next time good night Turning Japanese, I think I'm turning Japanese. I